Welcome to the Bonanza, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, episode 326. It's a very special evening here tonight, folks. It's an international show, as you've come to know and love. And across the border from me, Large William, we don't have Sammy, but we do have the East Coast and the West Coast. We have on the West Coast, the Blu-ray Viking himself, Kelly. How are you, Kelly? Yeah, what's up, baby? <laughs> and in the great state of Pennsylvania, we have fellow gent, the scribe of the GGTMC, uh, a man who we all know and love, Todd. Hiya, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this is uh, an over-caffeinated intro, to be sure. Um, this week's episode is a little bit of a different format. It's something that we um, we look forward to doing here. Uh, Sammy, not as much. He um, not not the biggest list guy, but uh, I do love lists, and I think you know a lot of cinephiles do love lists. So, um, what this episode is is it's top thirty first time watches. So, any films that are, I would say, I guess everyone has a bit of a different um, uh, metric or or scale as to how far out they're willing to look at films from this list. For me, it's about three, four, five years or older. Uh, what about you guys? Uh, I think uh, for me it was like yeah, around five years, I believe. I'll go. Uh, I'll go as uh, as late as uh, the year before. To be honest, because I, no, I mean, good. it's still something. It's it's still something. It's it's relatively new, but at the same time, you know, I haven't seen. Yeah. I didn't see it when it was uh, originally available, so I put that one in there. And and I don't do that often. I prefer not to. I prefer to. But if something really really hit me enough, uh, and it was you know within a, a year of. Uh, of the year prior to when we do this, then I would put it in there. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think, which, um, which will prove true tonight, actually. Nice. Well, it's one of those things where, um, you know, you get, uh, you get films that fall through the cracks. Um, they just don't, you know, the, when they come out, the year end shows are done. And that's why we do our, our year end show, which top 30 of 2014 will be next week. Normally it's this week, but we've both been super busy. So, um, did we lose someone? No, I think that was my Facebook notification. Ah, okay, cool, cool. Okay, so, um, yeah, I guess without further ado, I'm going to defer to our guests. And uh, let's start on the East Coast. And as always, for those that are unfamiliar with the format, we do 10 to 1, and then we do 11 to 30. It may seem a bit kind of wonky, I guess, in terms of why we do it that way, but the reason we do 10 to 1, it came from our annual uh contemporary year top 30 just to kind of keep a little more um suspense because if you work backwards from 30 people that know us and know what we've really been repping for in a year can kind of figure out what's probably going to be there so um yeah so totter let's hear number 10 all righty well uh my number 10 is something that um it gets it gets called noir but it's i don't really consider it noir uh, it is uh, 1945's John M. Stahl's uh, Leave Her to Heaven. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, buddy. It's got the divine Jean Tierney in it. Um, nice. She does an absolutely marvelous job. She carries the movie uh, as possibly one of the most devious women in the history of cinema, and if not, she really should be uh, considered that way. Uh, she she's, she really does a wonderful job playing open and guarded, uh, innocent and haunted all at the same time. Um, and it's just amazing to me the lengths that she'll go to uh, to to get her way, and and especially in 1945, it was kind of 
uh, you know, shocking for that time. And you get uh, you get uh, Vincent Price in there to boot. It looks absolutely stunning uh, color, which again is, you know, I guess you could uh, if you're going to get like technically picky about noir. I tend to think of them more in black and white, unless you're talking neo noir. But at the same time, um, I consider this, like I said, more a, a psycho thriller type deal. But uh, absolutely phenomenal movie, uh, and uh, high, high, high recommend. And and actually, I need I should probably say this before we even you know continue. I would consider my top 15 or so almost interchangeable for the number one spot. Yeah, um, it's really slim degrees that, that that kept these guys apart. It was a tough year to pick. Um, you know, to get all the way up to, to number one and then figure out what it was going to be. So, And uh, that's my number 10. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a film I adore as well. Scott of Married with Clickers fame, um, he made a really big proclamation about that film. I want to say it was last year. I hope memory serves, and I did put it on my list last year. Um, if I didn't, then it would be, yeah, like top five, top five to ten for me. And if you've seen that film, uh, <laughs> that boat scene... Oh, it's unbelievable. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's a really, really fantastic film. Cornell Wilde, right? Yes. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. And, uh, Kelly, what do you got for number 10, man? All right, my number 10 is uh, from 1960 uh, by a man named Basil Dearden, and it is The League of Gentlemen. Oh, man, I've been meaning <laughs> to see this great. one forever. That's a good uh, one. Yeah, it is. It's cool, man. It, it's, um, you know... A, Disgraced uh, military guy it brings together a, a group of uh, veterans to uh, perform a bank heist, and uh, things happen, and it's really cool, and you know, really uh, got some cool, you know, uh, stylistic choices, especially for '60s. You know, with the uh, the famous, you know, scene is the de- the gas masks and uh, bank robbery and stuff, which looks really cool and plays out really cool in the movie, but. Um, it, I, I got this in the uh, the Basil in a Criterion clip series set, and it is, it's just great, man. If if you like some like crime stuff, it's early crime, it's British crime, it's it's really fun time. Let me ask you, I haven't seen it, and I, I tried to jump on it because I was feeling the Roger Livesey after I'd seen Blimp, uh, and I just I didn't get around to it, and I really wanted to. But what do you prefer, this or The Killing? Oof. I'd go this. Nice. And you, Todd? Uh, of these two, I would go The Killing. Nice. Okay, good. I got to see it, man. I, I, see think, it. I think that Killing's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, for sure. And I, I have, yeah. I mean, not quite apples to apples, but uh, still kind of noir-y, heisty. Cool. Things go sideways. That's very cool. Um, my number 10 is a film that really came out of nowhere for me. I'd never even heard of it until this year. And then I got it from the place that shall not be named because I was like, you know what? I got to cram as much uh, Alain Delon as I can. And uh, the French title is Les Granges Brûlées or The Burned Barns, 1973. And man, this film was really fantastic. Um, it's really hard to find a lot out about this film, but it's anchored by Delon and Simone Signore, who had a banner year for me, um, as we'll hear about later on. Uh, it's essentially about a, a city detective, Delon, um, who comes into a small farming community to investigate the uh, a murder, and he kind of hones in on this family, and, and Simone Signore's character is the matriarch, and it's about her trying to kind of protect her family and this kind of community itself, and it's really well shot. 
it's and it's just to see two of the premier actors in a country, uh, Senior A and Delon, kind of go head to head, but in a very respectful way. Like he's not out for blood, and she's not really black hat, as it were. Um, it's really fantastic, man. I, I really, if you can get your hands on Burned Barns, high recommend for me for sure. Wait, is it is it Burned Barns or Burning Barns? The Burned Barns or Les Granges Brûlées. So it's it's short, nice and tight, ninety five minutes. Um, can't spell that. Yeah, brûlé is B R U L E E S. Not that you really need that. And Grange is G R A N G E S. Grange is Brûlées. Got it. Yeah, man. So that's that's Good a one. cool one. Yeah, John. I've seen the lawn, but I never heard of that one, man. Yeah, it's cool, man. It's real cool. And John uh, Chapeau directed it, and I don't know a whole lot about him either. Um, I, I was really trying to get into more French film from the '70s and '80s this year, so that was you know a real gem. So there it is. Totter, awesome. what, do you, what do you got? Uh, uh, we well, uh, number nine. We are swinging over to Japan. Uh, for a little slice of heaven from uh, 1966. This is Hiroshi Teshigahara's The Face of Another. Oh, yes. Uh, this has, I mean, outside of a really, it's got a really great score just on top of everything else. It, it actually has really effective documentary-style handheld shots, which, you know, is, is kind of a pet peeve of mine, especially these days with shaky cam. Um, this is the kind of movie that could sit very comfortably alongside stuff like uh, Pi or Seconds. Uh, it's it does a, a nice job of um, it's very arty, but it it it, it, it drags just a hair. But it, it's uh, I think it maybe brings up more ideas than it can really handle. But it's still massively impressive. Uh, it it's uh, it's one of those movies kind of like Yodorowsky in that it's very artful, but it's very accessible. Or at least it was for me. And I I, I believe me, I understand that a lot of folks would not be able to get into this because it can be a little bit uh, a little bit much to take um but i just thought that you know the visuals are absolutely stunning the what it's saying um i mean i lost my place here uh about uh, appearances and perceptions and masks personas and all that sort of thing um is just uh, fascinating to me uh, i wasn't i wasn't quite sure uh, and i don't know if anybody else has has any insight on this I wasn't a hundred percent sure about the subplot with the scarred woman. In uh, it. I can't seen remember. The movie? It's been a couple of years. Yeah, if you've seen the movie and you and you you know it is fresh in your memory and you and you know anything about it, uh, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure what what that was about. But uh, but that's the that's the beauty of it. It's one of those movies that makes you you know you're actively thinking while you're still being. It's still an entertaining movie. Isn't that um, the one where I think doesn't the husband? Go for a different face. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. That's a really cool film, and if people, and that's also in like an eclipse set, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. T- uh, Teshigahara. I think it's three with the uh, woman in the dunes, and I can't think of the other one. Those people and sleep I've, on the eclipse sets, man. There, there's some lot of gems in there for a good bang for oh, your buck. Oh my so, god, yeah. The Nakatsu Noir is a really great set. Too. Nakatsu Noirs. The horror came to show. Yeah, Chico, yeah. Really good. Oh yeah. For sure, man. Very cool. Very cool. And that's all I got on that one. Keller, right. number nine. Number nine, going to Australia <laughs> for uh, <laughs> uh, little money movers. Nice. This one's on instant, yeah. I think, still. Yeah. yeah, yeah that, that's, that's how I saw it. I think it was – pretty sure it was Davey Mack who uh, was the one that was hardest repping for it when uh, everyone – I feel like a lot of us kind of watched it at once. Yeah. 
and uh, that's when I watched it, and it's uh, it's really good. It's it's you know it's got the grit. It's the '70s. It's gritty. It's crime. I mean, if you like all that, it, it's it's great. You know, it's about a heist or a uh, armored uh, car company that is uh, keeps getting basically robbed, and uh, the people coming in to try to counteract that. And it's really cool. It's got a super squibby, bloody climax that's oh, it amazing. Totally Tarantino. Totally. Oh, it's so cool. It's got awesome uh, title, you know, fonts. I'm a big guy for fonts, and it's got... <laughs> you and Loesch need to do a font cast. Oh, man. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Do font cast. Um, but yeah, uh, Money Movers is a great crime film if you haven't uh, dug into it yet. Cool. And it's cool to see 70s Australia versus, um, like, early 70s Australia versus late, sort of, or mid-80s, late 70s Australia. It's cool. Like for me, like I, I was never uh, really, you know, well versed on Australian cinema until um, Animal Kingdom came out. And once I saw Animal Kingdom, I, I started going back and watching a lot of Australian stuff. And man, they're awesome. Like yeah, they from 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 back then to now, like they've just been doing great stuff. Like it's been such a treat. Like going through Australia's cinematic history, it's so good. Yeah, and their their films tend to be pretty lean and mean. Like they don't they don't usually yeah. suffer from bloat, unlike a lot of countries. And that was uh, that was Bruce Beresford, the guy that did the, the Adventures of Barry McKenzie. Yeah, and, right. Uh, Barry McKenzie holds his own. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Good very stuff. Cool, man. Very cool. Um, does that mean it's my turn now? I guess it does, right? Yeah, sure. Number nine is one that was a recommend from uh, a friend, one of the, the ladies of the GGTMC. I think Todd saw it a few months before me, maybe a year before me, and I kept meaning to see it, kept meaning to see it, and I finally saw it, I want to say around November, uh, and that uh, is Victor Elrice's The Spirit of the Beehive. Ah, Nice. Yeah, this is a really beautiful film. Um, I found that between, not to spoil anything, but my films from um, 2014 that I loved and some of the films I really dug from, you know, years past, like in this list you're going to see, um, I really, really dug seeing uh, the world through the eyes of children. And I think, you know, as we've often talked about so much on the show, having kids for me made me appreciate that more. Some people maybe would have already had that appreciation, even if they don't have kids or don't want to have kids or if they've had, you know, their kids are old or whatever it is. But for me, I think much like seeing, you know, um, worlds through other, uh, excuse me, got a cough guys. One sec. Seeing the world through anyone else's eyes is fascinating, but especially when children can't intellectually or emotionally reconcile, some of the things that they're seeing or learning for the first time in the world is mysterious. And uh, this film deals with um, girls in a small Spanish village in 1940 and um, dealing with death and the movie Frankenstein. And it's uh, it's a beautiful film and it's really haunting yeah. and, and poetic. Um, and again, it's a criterion film. Yep. So, you know, it's and so, and I don't know if I mentioned the lovely lady that recommended it to us. I've been so kind of tripping over myself with the film. That's Tenny, of course. Yeah. Um, oh, very, nice. very cool film, man. And again, you know, pretty lean, 95 minutes. Um, yeah, I can't say enough good things about it. All righty. Um, my number eight is from 1947, and it is Edmund Golding's 
uh, Nightmare Alley. Now, this is uh, this is something that would make a great double bill with Freaks, which is one of my favorite uh, Touchstone movies of all time. Um, it has Tyrone Power in the main uh, in the main lead. It deals a lot with obviously you know Car- Carney folk and circus life and all that sort of thing. Uh, he's uh, Tyrone Power. I've only just started getting into his body of work slowly, like with some of his uh, swashbuckling stuff and um, that sort of thing. But then I, I saw this because I I read uh, the adaptation of the novel. Uh, I think it was an adaptation of the novel from uh, by Spain Rodriguez. Is a, a comic book, obviously, um, and it was really good. And so I, I wound up uh, buying the DVD a long while ago, and it just kind of sat around, sat around, sat around. Finally, hopped on it, and it is just incredible. Uh, Tyrone Power, he, he really has a knack for being affable, but he's kind of got like an edge to him. I don't know if it's his eyebrows or what, because <laughs> uh, he's got some caterpillars, like Army Archer kind of caterpillars going on on his on his brow there. Um, <laughs> But he he really he really the guy you can understand why the guy had uh, had star power he plays it right down the line. Um, it's got some uh, some great twists in this movie that I think I would say still feel fresh today. Uh, and there's also uh, an interesting theme about religion and charlatanism, if that's a word, and uh, real faith going on in there, which is another thing that I just you know I'm always I always gravitate to. Uh, if there's a little bit more, you know, then I'm I want to just not necessarily that I'm gonna come to any kind of grips with anything but that that uh, that i can think about it so uh and it's you know obviously being a noir there's you know gigantic pools of black all over the screen and it's just wonderful watching uh old black and white uh, cinematography when they really knew how to to get the most out of it and create these fantastic visuals so that is my number eight nightmare alley very cool nice i never heard of that one it sounds awesome <clears throat> Oh, it's it's outstanding. High, high, high recommend. Especially if you're into noir, even a little bit. Well, that's the thing. Like, I I feel like I've hit all the big heavy hitters of noir, but I really got to get into the uh, the other stuff that might not be as well known. So good. Well, but this one is this one's a little bit different because normally when you're thinking about noir, you're either thinking about cro- cops and robbers or you know heist sort of things and yeah. private eyes and that. And this isn't really like that, so it's a little bit uh, different. So definitely, wow. yeah. I've never seen it. <clears throat> I have to. I don't think I've seen any power films, sadly. But Joan Blondell's in it, and Blondell's a cool actress, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> awesome. All right, my number eight is a little Lancaster joint. Nice. And it is uh, the Swimmer from uh, 1968. Very cool. Uh, yeah, it came out on a uh, Blu-ray this year or last year, I guess, from uh, Grindhouse, and uh, great release of it. And man, what! A weird movie. I, I wasn't expecting it to be. I only picked it up because Grindhouse was putting it out. I'd never really heard of it. And uh, man, it was. It's it's cool. You know, Lancaster's uh, looking good in his speedos or you know little trunks. <laughs> and uh, he's uh, swimming across the valley. And you know, every time he uh, kind of meets a another neighbor, you you find out a little bit more about him. And it's really cool how they kind of. Uh, tell you his his story you know by by the different people you meet throughout his life or you know throughout his his little swim and it's kind of cool how they kind of turn the tables on you a little bit i don't want to give too much away but it's maybe turns out uh you know he's not who you think he is and uh it's a really really interesting film cool right. i'm looking forward to watching that yeah i blind bought the the blue when it came out but i've just been it, it looks great too man is that like, is that the 1960? Did you say? 68. 
68. Okay, so this is uh, this is color or black and white? Color. It's uh, color. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And it looks good too. It looks really good. It it pops, but yeah, Lancaster's awesome. And then you get a young uh, Joan River in there for a little bit, and uh, she's really cool. And uh, yeah, it's it's got interesting visuals, and uh, it's just a really it's a strange one for me. Like I thought it was really strange, like because I just didn't know what to expect from it. And it was pretty cool. By the end, I was kind of like, "Wow!" Like that was that was a little bit of a ride there. It was pretty fun. Nice, excellent, excellent. <clears throat> My number eight is also a beautiful film done in color. Twenty five years before that, um, it's a film that just I seem like for years I just felt so embarrassed I'd never seen. And I think you guys are both big fans. Davy Mac like would stake his life on this film. CDR would do the same. I needed to see more Powell Pressburger. So yeah. I finally, finally got around to seeing the life and death of Colonel Blimp. Yes. So then this film, something else, it's uh, it's beautiful. It's um, What can I really say that hasn't been said by people infinitely more scholarly than myself? But um, it's, it's a wonderful film. Uh, I, I was impressed with how much time it spans. Um, yeah, that scope. The scope, but uh, even more than the scope, how intimate it feels when you look at the life of this one man and the people in his life. Um, really fantastic. This is what kind of tipped me off to get me on the Roger Livesy train, Livesy train, and I felt like he really reminded me of. Uh, well, I guess Tom Hardy reminds me of him in some ways. Yeah. So I feel like if they're going to redo this. They could get Hardy for the uh, Livesy role. You know, the the bald skull cap doesn't quite hold up in blue, but it can be forgiven seventy years later. Um, yeah. Deborah Kerr, I think, at least you know, in our circles, I haven't seen as much praise go to her as. Um, as there is to Livesey and uh, Anton Wahlberg, who, you know, their their friendship is kind of the, the crux of the, the story. And there's a lot being just said about life and kind of profound things that are simple, um, but that really, um, really resonate with you. Um, but uh, Deborah Kerr, she plays three different women in this film, and, and she's fantastic. So I had kind of a nice year with Kerr as well. Um, and near the end, the back, very back end of the film, when she plays Angela Cannon, she's kind of the driver for the... Uh, for Mr. Candy, uh, late in the film, she looks really good. So, yeah, this is a beautiful film. I think anyone who really loves film owes it to themselves to see as much Paul Pressburg as you can because um, their films are just absolute masterpieces that that elevated the genre to uh, other levels. Yeah, yeah. I got. I, I watched the first. I've seen the first half hour of uh, of Colonel Blimp, unfortunately, and I never got back to it. I really got to. Really got to get back to that one. Oh man, yeah. I thought you were a big oh. fan. Yeah. No, I was. Uh, I, that was around the time that I saw Black Narcissus. Oh yes. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's that's uh, one of those ones I really, really got to get around to. I think I actually put it in my Netflix queue, so it should be moving up the line soon. But yeah, I'm looking forward to that a lot. Cool. Very cool. Hopefully next year it'll be uh, on the list. Yeah, never know. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a top ten, and that's a blue, that's a blue chip stock if I've ever seen. Oh yeah, happen, for sure. Cool. For sure. All right, um, daughter. All righty, my number seven comes from 1997. Uh, this is John Sayles' Men with Guns. Um, this blew me the fuck away. Uh, it's absolutely master filmmaking. Uh, Sales, he has that knack for being, even just in in his in his, his screenwriting, uh, being engaging and propulsive, 
uh, in only a, a few short scenes, and he doesn't really need big action set pieces, but he's good at doing them when he does them. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Um, he knows how to access uh, what makes people tick. You know, the world over. He's one of those guys that just, you know, he's got the the key that that, that opens the lock. Uh, this has a nice little uh, nice little theme of uh, legends and reality, and uh, it does a, a really good job of incorporating that into the film. And then there's also um, fantastic use of this framing device, um, which is part of that, that uh, that he brings in as you get towards the end. Uh, it's a lot more visually interesting than you would think from a guy like that who's not really known for being a visual stylist, who's more known for being a writer. Uh, a, yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so it was, yeah, it was absolutely an out, outstanding movie. Uh I, I don't know why I slept on this one as long as I did, um, but it's a high, 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 high recommend. I've never even heard of it, man. Oh, it's it's outstanding. Yeah, sales is very cool, man. Very cool. Yeah, I've seen I've seen way fewer of his uh, of the movies that he's directed than I than I would have thought, but uh, I'm slowly working my way through them, going back and rectifying that uh, that error. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Uh, what number are we on here? Seven, seven. lucky seven. seven. All right, so this kind of shows my ignorance a little bit. I, I didn't even know this was something that happened, but my uh, number seven is a uh, polytechnique. Oh man, and, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I saw Prisoners, uh, you know, late 2013, and after I'd seen that, you know, I really wanted to see, you know, well, I'd I'd seen um. I forget how you pronounce it. In- incendi. Oh, Lissandi. Incendi. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I had seen that, but I didn't connect the dots that that was the same guy that did Prisoners. Mm-hmm. So then when I found out he did Prisoners, I saw that, and then I said, I got to see Polytechnique. And I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know anything. I just bought it because it was uh, Denis Villeneuve, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know anything about this story. And this isn't really about the story. It's a, it shows you what happened. Uh, and Montreal in '89, yeah. and it's pretty pretty grim stuff. And it's you know y- you don't get a lot of backstory. It's nothing like that. It's just basically the what happened that day. It's kind of like Elephant. Yeah, and you know it's 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 short and well, I don't want to say short and sweet. It's short. Um, it's uh, you know it's like in the 70 minute mark, eight maybe 80. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's just if you uh, want to see a kind of just a slice of horrible life um but shot really well and looks great uh i would check out polytechnique it's it's a really well-made film um but rough to watch in some spots it's hard it's one of the biggest tragedies in in canada i remember when it happened i was nine you know just for to give people a backstory in case they're you know not sure what footing they're, they're on with this um it was about a man that um went to a school and and um gunned down a bunch of the female students um, older, like university, like, you know, college age women. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it really a dark spot in our, our country's uh, history. So, but yeah, yeah a wonderfully made film that was handled um, delicately. Yeah, I didn't even, I had never even heard of the the, the incident. I don't even know what to call it, but it, it was, uh, yeah, it, was it was a great, great looking film, great film, but yeah. yeah. The blue's but, nice. I remember. I remember. I watched it on blue, and you're like, "Oh, that's out on blue." Yeah. I, I remember. Yeah, I was like, "Yeah, yeah, it's out on blue now." And yeah, it's I a went good the one. Next day, I went to Amoeba, and it was there. So. That's yeah, that's just chumming the waters. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it, yeah. Uh, oh, no, that's Pardon? me, isn't it? That's you, yeah. Oh, yes, man, I'm asleep at the wheel. Uh, my <laughs> number seven is one that's uh, already been talked about tonight. Um, the strange, a strange day, or so it would appear, in the life of one Nettie Merrill, the swimmer, yeah. 1968. This film really had a profound impact on me when I saw it. Um, I remember the blue came out. I'd never even heard of the film, and this is this was kind of a shameful moment. I'd never even seen a Burt Lancaster film. Um, I don't think I had at this point, or if I had, I hadn't seen many. And I uh, we did this on the show for people who want to hear kind of an extended take on on my feelings and Sammy's feelings and and Scott again married with clickers. He's he recommended this film uh, quite highly, and um, it, it's. <sighs> I don't want to reveal too much, but it is a very strange film. And I think people with very linear sensibilities probably are going to be very put off by the ending. But um, I think it leaves a lot to to chew on and, and kind of contemplate. And, um, yeah, it's a film that's really stuck with me. And uh, Lancaster is fantastic in it. The, the film looks great. It's I, I always feel like 60s film on blue because it was such a clean time for yeah. making film. You know, yeah, pops. It's really fantastic, and uh, it says a lot, man. It really, this film really says a lot um, about life and and missed opportunity and perception of one's life, and and just a lot of things, a lot of stuff to chew on. That I think, depending on the person, they're going to take away different things from it. So, very high recommend, obviously, for me as well. Cool. All righty. That brings me to number six. This one is uh, from 2013, and it is uh, Mr. Martin Scorsese going back to the Goodfellas well, uh, but this time as a comedy uh, with uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, nice, nice. I absolutely fucking love this movie. This one's good, man. Uh, It's, it's, oh my God, I was, I was floored. Yeah? Yeah. Kelly? What? Oh, I, I'm oh. sorry. I thought, I thought you were asking me something. Uh, it's, uh, it's hilarious and compelling uh, as as a, like a, a critique of America. It's really, really, really crass. Um, it's uh, I, I thought that personally, uh, like with a lot of stories like this, and this is the same one of the same complaints that I had about Goodfellas uh, was once the once the uh, the quote unquote the woman. Uh, you know, comes into it and complicates things. It, it kind of loses some of the rough charm of it, uh, but the ride that uh, that this thing takes you on is so entertaining that uh, it, you know this movie still comes out smelling like a dozen roses. I think um, it's great to see Meathead uh, in a great role again, uh, doing something. Yeah, like yeah, for sure. You get to you know, I mean, just I mean, just the Quaalude scene is. Oh. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. And it, this, I mean, this is right down the line. This is Goodfellas, but you know, done from the other side of it instead of being about drama and uh you know that sort of thing it's it's just the completely opposite end it's comedy and it works wonders the man has not lost his touch and it, i love that that he does so many different things and does well, them so well so effortlessly uh, it's Scorsese. it's been said already like a million times but i mean why not say it again to, for a guy you know his age to make a movie that's so energetic that's and, the and, big and, thing for me man and it is it's unbelievable Yes, you know, yeah. so youthful feeling. It, it's it's insane. It's awesome. Testament to okay. his passion, I think. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it also goes to show you that uh, you know, the old dogs can still run with the uh, the young ones. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, the greats. Like you think of the real great, 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 great filmmakers. Most of them don't lose it. Like Altman, yeah. uh, Bergman, Kurosawa. I mean, they all worked late, right? So I think I think Kurosawa was working blind at the end of his career. Uh, pretty darn close. Yeah. yeah so. Yes. In a time when you can watch like a ninety-minute movie that feels like it takes forever, oh. and he takes a three-hour movie and makes it feel like half an hour, like it's yeah, awesome. That movie flies. <clears throat> yeah, it does. The only scene for me that that kind of missteps is the uh, this like the boat scene with the helicopter and stuff. Oh okay. yeah, yeah. That was a bit much, but other than that, yeah, I loved it, and it was my you know really good couple years for Leo because. Leo's always a guy I've admired his choices more than I've admired, admired his performances. But between Django last year, which is a film I'm a bit lukewarm on, but his performance in that and then in this, I think this is his best performance. Well, he's yeah, he's one of those guys who, for the longest time, I just didn't like him. Mm-hmm. I mean, just didn't like him, didn't want to have anything to do with him. I, and admittedly, it was, you know, for very shallow, you know, pretty boy looks kind of reasons. But uh, <laughs> over time, over time, he has absolutely uh, gotten through to me. He's, I think, he's a marvelous actor, uh, and he's definitely one of the best going today. Oh yeah. Even if he, even you know, even if he, and especially I admire him because he could walk out of a bar with like what was it, uh, two dozen women, and just went down on the beach and hung out. Yeah, he's he's living the life, man. Yeah, buddy. I love that Leo. Yeah, man. But he, he respects the craft and he loves the craft. And, yeah. you know, he, he really does. He really yeah. does. He doesn't make dog shit, man. He could make pff, dog shit for days I and mean, get cash $20 million checks, but he works with good filmmakers. Dog yeah. shit for days. Yeah. He's, worked with, he's, worked, he's worked with Scorsese how many times now? Like five? Yeah. Is yeah, it like four or five or something like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be. So, yeah, he's like the, you know, that new De Niro Scorsese. Uh, dynamic duo yeah definitely but uh, yeah that that is my number six all right <laughs> my number six is uh wow it's a donahue joint it is parole violators yeah boy <laughs> it is uh if you like to see people going above and beyond what they need to do to make a movie then this is the movie because the stunts in this People are getting really – they're getting injured, and they don't need to, but they're doing it. They're going for it. It's a super ultra-low-budget crime – I guess you could say crime film action uh, about a guy who is uh, – his girlfriend's daughter's kidnapped, and he's basically going to get <laughs> revenge. And it's over the top. It's ridiculous. It's terrible acting, and it's fun on every level, and it's awesome. If you like to see guys just go way above and beyond what they need to for an ultra low budget movie, this is the movie. It's insane. But I don't even know what else to say. It's it's parole violated. <laughs> it, it it looks terrible. It uh, <laughs> it sounds terrible, but it's amazing. It's it's fun all the way through. And that's cool. all we got on violators. That's what, yeah. That, that's another one that I haven't. Uh, was that that wasn't uh, PM Entertainment, was it? No, I don't think. No, it was Anything? like it was. I don't know. It was like a Mike, and, a Mike and Steve production. Yeah, it's Donahue Entertainment. <laughs> ah, okay, okay, okay. I, I I would assume those guys. That whole family makes insane movies, and everything they touch is gold. In as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, big time. <laughs> big time. Okay, cool. 
My number six, or I guess I should say number six, uh, is 1955, uh, a filmmaker who wasn't as prolific as I think he could have been. He cast his wife in one of the lead roles in this film. I don't know what that says about him or, or their relationship, uh, but it's a wonderful kind of supernatural feeling noir uh, and it's been remade. I haven't seen the remake, but uh, this is just this film blew me away. I watched it with my mom right around Christmas time, and we, we really dug it. And again, Simone Signore, it's uh, Henri Georges Clouseau's Les Diaboliques. Uh, nice. Man, this, oh, yeah. this film is so good and so twisty and turny. And um, I just want to read the synopsis for those unfamiliar with it. The wife of a cruel headmaster and his mistress conspire to kill him. But after the murder is committed, his body disappears and strange events begin to plague the two women. It's um, It really juggles kind of the real world with kind of potentially supernatural uh uh, events and it you know it takes a lot of twists and turns and it's it's been very influential in films and thrillers since then um you know there's there's yeah really ahead of its time man really ahead of its time and and uh so well written certainly and yeah it's uh, again another criterion film one that i'm going to be buying this year um yeah i can't say enough good things about it yeah that's a great great film with a yeah, it, it's it's eerie and it's like the just it's not a horror film, but it feels creepy. I, I don't know. No, 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 that's definitely in there. Yeah, it yeah, does. It does feel creepy, and it's so like the the, the performances uh, from the kids and all the supporting cast. Man, it's just I feel like it's a really great film for people that are into horror and are kind of looking to get into noir or kind of branch out above and beyond what they've been watching. There's kind of a, these cool kind of lesbian undertones and um, it, it all, yeah, it's just, it, yeah, very creepy um, atmospheric. It feels at times like um, um, very Germanic with some of the lighting and, and stuff. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, very cool, man. Definitely. Nice. Definitely. Nice. Is that over to me then? Um, and number five, uh, we are going to Italy, or as we say around here, Italy. Uh, <laughs> this comes from the, one of the great uh, neorealists, Vittorio De Sica. It is 1952's Umberto D. Nice. Uh, and this was just flat out one of the most heartbreaking and dignified and wonderful looks at just humanity and life in general. Um, you know, the, the world is, is kind of, is, is beating the, the dignity out of Umberto piece by piece and he's struggling to maintain his pride, even though he's, you know, being systematically pummeled, uh, having it pummeled out of him. Um, I really, really liked, uh, Maria, the, the, um, oh, what was she, uh, like the housemaid, uh, who's pregnant in the. Oh, the, I love uh, that. that he's, yeah, she's, she's absolutely wonderful. Her with the, the ants and all the other things going on um the 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 scene there's a scene that, that takes place at a dog pound that's really rough going when you go there and you see oh. all these people looking for their lost dogs oh, and you don't man. know if they've been uh you know taken away and uh, and maybe uh executed which I, I guess i should back up here part of the part of the whole uh story of the of the film is that for a part a portion of the film uh oh, jesus it's late uh for a portion of the film he loses his dog Flyka, so he goes, you know, nuts uh, trying to find him 
uh, running all over the city because that's you know the kind of one of the the things that uh, well one of the only things that he has that that has any sort of an emotional attachment to uh, to him anymore. And at the end, this will all prove to be the the thing that you know is gonna. I don't want to give anything away, uh, but it, it's that it's that relationship that uh, that really anchors the movie at the end and kind of puts the period on the sentence. And I think, um, we, sorry, I'm totally yeah, no, no, go ahead, go ahead, bum rushing the fucking stage. Go ahead, finish. That wasn't very uh, gentlemanly I, I, of me. That, that that's perfectly yeah. fine. Uh, I was just going to say that you know even the dog knows that you know life is worth living. Uh, by the time you get to the end of the movie, and it's really. It's just it's amazingly powerful. By the time you get there, uh, it takes a it takes a while to get there because it's not really it's not really like a linear narrative, you know, kind of action. It's not propulsive, that's for sure. No, it's not. Yeah, it's not what we it's not what we would technically call like pace. Well, technically, it's not what we would call pacey. No, uh, you know, it's not uh, you know action set pieces and you know like things happening. There's not really uh, a focus on uh, on plot so much <clears> as it is on the guy living his life and trying to to figure out how he's going to survive and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead, please. What were you, you going to say? I was just going to say, one of the things I always love about um, films done during wartime is, you know, metaphor. Like when you look at like the dog pound and when you look at all that stuff and the representation of life and how it, to some, you know, life is, you know, that well, you can just execute them or get rid of them, exterminate them. Whereas to a family, that life is everything. And that ripple effect it has, you know, transcends a lot. So yeah, that's a really, really great film, man. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely one hundred percent. If you haven't seen it, get on it this year because it's definitely one worth seeing. It will stay with you for the rest of your life, I think. Yeah, I know Sammy's a big fan of that one too. Oh, cool, nice. Yeah, that's all I got on that one. All right, number five, right? Uh, yes. I'm really bringing the trash here. Uh, what could possibly be par- parole violators? What could it be? Well, oh, not much, get, brother. Let's hear. <laughs> <laughs> you get William Smith. You get Wings Hauser. Oh yes. <laughs> and you get it directed by Mr. John DeHart. You get Dot Vanity Project, son. <laughs> you, get to, you get Road to Revenge, aka Get Even. Yeah. All caps, no spaces. That's right. And uh, it's. <laughs> Amazing, I this is solely on the shoulders, I believe, of CDR and the cult of Muscle, who uh, I think were the first ones to kind of bring this to we, light. We were going to cover it a couple years ago because Uncool Cat's a big fan. Oh, okay. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're huge fans of it, and we've talked about it before because John DeHart's stuff. But we got to give it up to the the Muscly Boys because. They I had I, I missed the... I missed any and all conversations about it until it came up there. Oh yeah, and well, like mine, right? Boy. It's huh? it, like mine's. Oh man, yeah, great minds think alike. Fucking movie. That's so good. Vanity to the extreme. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't even matter what the plot was because it didn't make any sense. <laughs> it's so. Amazing. But I had I had such a good time watching it. Like I. Like every day, I just like think. There's probably every day I think about different scenes from the movie. It's so ridiculous. He sings his own songs. Oh yeah, with like yeah. a lady on each arm, I think, right? Yeah, man. He's he's got the shimmy shake. The shimmy shake, man. Which yeah. is classic. If you want to have just a fun time, watch Road to Revenge. 
because you won't forget it. It's a blast to watch. I can't believe how fun that movie is. What's great? What's so great about it is William Smith always plays bad guys, but he's like the hero sandwich of bad guys in this because he's a corrupt judge who deals drugs, is a devil worshiper, kills children. <laughs> like he just stacks it, man. He stacks that oh, sandwich with so much evil. And, and then Wings is just Wings is on fire. He's high as a kite. He's so coked out, you could tell he took the heart script, crumpled it up, threw it in the waste can, and said, <laughs> Johnny Baby, I got this. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do my thing. Yeah, man. <laughs> and he fucking wings it up, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> wings just has to do wings, man. Yeah, dude. He fucking housers that place. Oh, yeah, man. Especially <laughs> and, the scene at the bar. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a fun, fun film. It is fun. Like, I never thought it would be in a top five of anything, but there it is. It's awesome. Magically delicious. <laughs> yeah. Go watch it and have a fucking ball do it. Nice. Okay, That's cool. That's all I got on Road to Revenge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my number five is a film that I also saw late in the year. I remember I'd never heard of the film until maybe two or three years ago. And there was a Criterion sale, and I was looking at all the Criterions they had. It was like Barnes & Noble, right? Everyone goes bananas, and it's 50% off. And we put 30 things in our basket and pair take it out down, half. Take out half and come back the next day. And, you know, but I, I just saw this cover, and it was this blue cover. And it had this, this girl with this um, newsboy, checkered newsboy cap on. It's painted, like, uh, or drawn or painted cover with this blue face, and she's sticking her tongue out. And she's got a side boy, sideways newsboy cap on. I thought, man, what is this? And uh, I just, I never pulled the trigger on it. And then I looked at, you know, kept seeing it. And then I saw it was called Zazie dans le Metro. And uh, <laughs> man, I was like, I got to see this. I really got to see this film. And I watched it and I fucking loved it. Um, without, this is going to sound so unbelievably pretentious and ridiculous, but I really feel this in my heart. I feel like... The great thing about Louis Mal as a filmmaker is, you know, maybe he wasn't Truffaut or Godard or um, anyone else that was really popular in the new wave, Melville or any of these guys. But Mal worked, was malleable. He worked in a lot of different genres. He just worked in all kinds of different genres. But this film to me, if, if someone was going to say to me, you need to take a film that you feel really represents the French new wave in its purest most beautiful form i would recommend this film because i feel like zazie is the embodiment of the new wave and all that's great about it um the sort of um the playfulness the shenanigans the cheekiness the sort of glee with which she breaks rules but is still lovable and charming it feels like if you dig Hausu. Um, it's like Hausu, a little bit of Hausu, a uh, little bit of, um, who, uh, was it Chuck Jones? Is it Chuck Jones? The Warner Brothers cartoons? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Chuck Jones, a little bit of Chuck Jones in there. There's stop motion. There's all sorts of wild stuff happening in this film, man. It's unbelievably charming and it's so French and I love it. Well, it's, it's funny, uh, you- well, not funny, but uh, just to add to, to what you were saying about it being about the uh, the French New Wave in its purest sense, it's also very much about you know how what the French New Wave was doing with the form. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, yeah, absolutely. Playing with uh, playing with form. Yeah, you know, you know, pure 
nonsensical, you know, let's put this here, let's edit this way, let's do, let's undercrank this, let's, you know, and just to, to try and create something that's, that had to create like a different uh, uh, vocabulary that yeah. uh, up to that point hadn't been taken down that route. And so. you know why they do it? Because they can. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's beautiful. It's like, yeah, Zazie is the embodiment and the film itself is the exercise in tearing it all down and making a sandbox and doing everything, pulling every trick out of the book and just having fun with it. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a blast. It's a blast. Yeah, there's so many strange things, like just ridiculous things that come out of nowhere and happen. And they happen because they can. They don't yeah, need to not, make sense. It's not. Yeah, it's not the kind of movie if you're looking for <laughs> if you're looking for uh, for sense. It's not it's not where you go. This is unless it, it was unless it was opposite day. Yes. Yes. I haven't, seen, I haven't seen it, but it's weird. Like as you're explaining it and, and the different things. This is probably way off, but it sounds like you're describing, and it makes me want to see the movie, an episode of like Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh man, this Kinda, yeah, totally, man, totally. <laughs> I can 100 percent because I always now that I see Pee Wee now, I feel like Jacques Tati and Marx Brothers and William Castle all really influence him, and uh-huh. I feel like this kind of is in like in the spirit of like Tati, and I dig on this more than I dig on a lot of Tati stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, if you yeah. Spot on, man. This is like a Pee Wee esque uh, oh, maneuver, yeah. and it's Sounds only eighty nine minutes. So if you get tired of all the uh, the uh, the bullshit, then you can jump out <laughs> in less than ninety. Yeah, there you go. So that was number. Uh, was that Sank? Five. The French are taking a run on me here. Uh, we are going back to Cali? Japan. <laughs> going back to Brooklyn with uh, Colin Quinn. Um, uh, we're going back to Japan for uh, 1951. Uh, the filmmaker is Yasujiro Ozu, and this would be early summer. Nice. Um, I've been slowly working my way through Ozu's work in, as chronologically as I can on Netflix. Um and uh, I finally got to this one, and they're all amazing in their own way. Because he's a very, he's a very quiet filmmaker, but he's a very beautiful filmmaker. Uh, he's very contemplative in uh, the way that he puts things together. He's not, again, it's not the sort of thing where, you know, it's about you know conflicts and you know this big melodramatic thing. It's very, it's very quiet. It's about uh, the, the the dynamic of this family that's going on with this woman played by uh, Setsuko Hara, who I maintain, and I will go to my grave saying this, has one of the most magnetic smiles. Yeah, she's your homegirl, man. Maduchi is, she could light up not only a room, a town, New York City. Todd's heart. Oh, my goodness. She's amazing. Uh, but uh, the, like I was saying, the, the family dynamic is, is very warm. There's lots of teasing. Uh, the one kid's a, a real little uh, whippersnapper. In uh, some of the, the ways that he, he teases his uh, his uh, grandfather and that, um, so it's, it's, there's humor. And it's it's light, but at the same time, um, there's some pretty frank. I was kind of surprised by this uh, sexual discussions about lesbians and you know having sex and and that sort of thing. For 1951 in Japan, I'm not that familiar with the sexual with the culture at that time, but uh, my understanding was that they're a little more state about that kind of thing uh so it, it just kind of it just kind of struck me as as being a little bit um just uh odd for the time i feel like they've always been pretty um 
ahead of the curve when it comes to a lot of the stuff they depict in film, even if as a culture outside of cinema, maybe they're a little more reserved. I feel like they've always been pretty progressive, like with their female characters, with their frankness and openness about sexuality. Um, yeah. So I've always admired that. Like when you're mentioning um, face of another, just really ahead of its time, you know, and this one as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it being in the fifties and especially the early fifties, well, I, yeah. was, I, was, I was kind of taken aback by that just a little but, bit. I mean, I, I could see it once you, once you get into the sixties. Yeah. Then, it, yeah. Really it's the acid party, man. Everything is. Yeah, the table. exactly. <laughs> uh, save the earth. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, but that's, that's a completely different, uh, uh, thing. Um, so where was I? Uh, yeah, the, the, there's a fantastic, uh, use of deep focus and landscapes in this thing. Um, he's, uh, he's one of those guys. And I, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, Will, when we've spoken, uh, but the way that he edits is kind of like, you know, he'll cut to, uh, like a pot of, uh, you know, a potted plant in a room just to break up the a scene. Not necessarily that he's cutting to another scene, or that he's he's uh, you know trying to move anything forward, but just that he'll take time to just say, okay, now we're going to look at this for a couple minutes, and we're going to take this in, and then we're going to move back here. And um, so yeah, it, Yasujiro Ozu, uh, he's a, a damn fine filmmaker, uh, and this was an outstanding film. Um, so definitely, uh, definitely worth seeing. Very cool. I would ask if that was your favorite Ozu so far, but I don't want to spoil the rest of your list. Um, it is my favorite Ozu as of right now from what I've seen of his, yeah. Cool. I still have a long way to go, though, so. Very cool. Yeah, I've only seen three, I think, so. I haven't seen, I haven't seen too many either, and and actually, (coughs) a lot of the stuff that was, uh, immediately around the time of World War II, uh, I have not watched, um, just because they tend to be kind of of the same the same sort of thing about you know duty and honor and the whole thing with the japan starting to get into into the war and all that sort of thing so they just kind of like not really that interesting to me outside of uh outside of the visuals so i just i feel okay skipping them for now i'll get back to them eventually but i just want to see uh where where you know how he progresses and see where he goes from here very cool yeah it's always interesting when we have the the means to see a filmmaker's arc from you know the genesis of their career right on through like i think it's fascinating too to see filmmakers like ozu or you know when you, you see like a kurosawa transitioned into color or you know keaton or chaplin transitioning into sound i always i think that's fascinating or even just f- filmmakers and see how their their themes and fixations either stay the same or they move past them into other things as their life changes so very interesting mm-hmm. that's all i got Nice. All right. Well, my number four is—it's uh, one of those movies where, like, really, what am I going to say about it? Everyone's seen it but me, and it's one of those movies where I don't know how, considering like my leaning towards action cinema and stuff, I haven't seen it, but it just happened, and it's the Last Boy Scout. Nice, uh, nice. Last Boy Scout. Um, I don't know how this one slipped through the cracks after all these years especially being a huge action fan. I don't get it, how it happened, but it, it did. It happens, man. And um, it's awesome. I mean, the, the opening scene on the football field is amazing. I, you know, I feel like just dumb even saying any of this because everyone's like, yeah, you know, that's an amazing scene. You can't see um, it all, man. It's, 
you get a Taylor Negron, the late Taylor Negron, yeah. sadly, yep. who is awesome in it as a, as a baddie. And um, it's about a cop and a football player, like, <laughs> figuring out a murder case with a football team. Like, <laughs> it's insane, like, when you really break it down what it is. But it's it's Shane Black. It's It's got his awesome dialogue. It's got great performances. It's got big explosions and big squibs. And uh, that's what I like to see in my action movies. And that's what this is. It's a great, fun time. And everyone's seen it, so <laughs> I'm sorry for bringing it up again. No, no, it's good. <laughs> no, I, I only just saw that one a couple of years ago myself. So There's a lot yeah, of films. People, trust me, I, I pull the group, man. I guarantee there's at least ten people that haven't seen it. Oh, yeah. Maybe. But it is great, and everyone should see it if you haven't. Cause oh, it's a blast. I had a blast with it. I'm kind of bummed. Like I have it on IMDb right now, and it's only got a 6.9. Man, this thing should be in the eights. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So that's number four. I really tossed around my number four and my number three. Um, and it's interesting when I reveal my number three because the film I'm about to mention is primarily – a film that's set with uh, almost entirely a female cast. Um, one that eluded me for a long time. I know Totter's a big fan. CDR's a big fan. Uh, and it's, it's my second Deborah Kerr jam on the list, and it's probably one of the most beautiful films ever made. It's uh, 1947's Black Narcissus, Powell Pressburger. Outstanding. Yeah, it's so yeah. good. It's such a good film. It's it's exotic. Um the thing you talked about, Todd, with faith in films, while I may not be a religious person, I think all of us wrestle with uh, spirituality, morality, um, defining our sense of purpose in life, honor, um, and just not above and beyond all those things, being thrust into situations and trying to work your way through them. Sometimes when you don't have the answers, that really is really what happens to Deborah Kerr's character. Um it's got some really great performances from like David Farrar, man. The guy's got like an, a very interesting wardrobe in this film. Uh, <laughs> Sabu is really cool as the young gen- young general. Uh, yeah, man, David Farrar, 1947. The guy's wardrobe is so GGTMC. It's amazing. Like no socks, straw hats, Daisy Duke shorts. He's in it to win it, man. Um, but yeah, it's it's a beautiful film, and I think it it shows some of the greatest matte painting work in the history of the medium. Absolutely, the perspectives um, that they got oh, and pulled off flawlessly. It flawlessly, even on Blu-ray, it's the metric yeah. I think that everything else is going to be measured against for me when I see matte paintings and and that sort of stuff. It's it's beautiful, and I think that um, I'll tell you, there's some stuff towards the back end of this film that. I have to feel like Argento saw because it mm. ta- it becomes almost like Suspiria. It does, about, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, for about ten minutes, it becomes like really feverish and insane, and um, it's it's a beautiful film. And you know, these guys just made magic, and I'm, I'm glad I finally got this one off my list. And it's, I mean, it's lean and mean compared to Blimp. It's a uh, hundred minutes. Yeah, so, and I yeah. prefer this to Blimp, as as I've said here, which. Um, which I guess, Todd, you have to finish seeing Blimp before you yes. can make a statement on that. What about you, Kel? Yeah, oh, it's Blimp for me. Blimp for I you, eh? Absolutely love it. Nice. You can't go wrong either way. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, cool. That's uh, my number four, right? Uh, yes, sir. Okay, Todd. 
Uh, alrighty, we are coming back to the good old U.S. of A. Uh, this the year is 1973. This is Jerry Schatzberg uh, directing the film of Scarecrow. Nice. Uh, <laughs> this thing, outside of Vilmos Zygmunt's cinematography, which just kills it. Uh, you also get Eileen Brennan's jugs in this thing, so that's two pluses, <laughs> two plus columns right there. Yeah. Um. Let me see. Got lost. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Jugs, man. Yeah. You could get hung up on those literally. Literally. You have I'll put it to you this way: there's a scene with Pacino and Richard Lynch and J and B. So right there. Yeah, man. That puts it in the fucking in the pantheon territory. Like Kochi uh, said, magic, a whole <laughs> lot of magic. Uh, but it, it stars uh, Gene Hackman and uh, and uh, Al Pacino as a couple of uh, drifters uh, traveling across America, and they hook up with each other kind of at odds to begin with because they're they're two they're two people who are at odds just in and of themselves. Their personalities are completely different. Pacino's very, you know, like uh, wise, cracky, fun loving and Hackman's very serious and, you know, kind of uh, short fused and um, they're traveling across the country. They're going to open up this, uh, the car wash when they get to, I think he said, I think they wanted to, they were going to New, New Jersey, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. I remember that correctly. Uh, and it's just them, them traveling along and, and the, the stuff that they get into. And more important than that, the bond that they, uh, that they create, uh, they're, they're total opposites. Um, but watching this, this relationship form is, is endlessly compelling. Um, you really feel cause I think that Max, uh, that the Hackman character is the, the, the linchpin character of the film. And you, and you genuinely, uh, feel him coming to care for, uh, Francis, who's the Pacino, uh, character. Uh, there's a couple of real gut punches in this movie, and because you've spent so much time watching these two fantastic actors uh, describe out these two fascinating characters, it really hits you. Um, it, it's they they these uh, it's one of those it's one of those kind of movies where uh, the characters start at opposite ends, and when the the film finishes, they are at the completely opposite ends from that, like as if they they had formed a cross and moved across each other and, and through and, you know, arrived at the same destination, but different, if that makes any kind of sense, which it doesn't. So I'm going to stop no, that analogy. Um, and uh, the other thing, aside from the first two things that I said, which was Vilmos Sigmund and Eileen Brennan's hoo-hahs, uh, is that you get to see <laughs> Mr. Gene Hackman do a strip tease in this. And if that yeah. doesn't sell you on this, man, you yeah. cannot be sold. Uh, but sold, Scarecrow sold off of and, that now. Puts the and, man and Hackman thereby. This is one. This is one of those movies. I'm really, really surprised more people don't talk about when they talk about the '70s. When they talk about uh, just movies in general, I very. It, it, this just came on uh, up on. This was one of those ones that kind of floated onto my radar every now and then, and I would forget about it, and then it would float up, and then I would forget about it. But it's very rarely one of those ones that people talk consistently about. Uh, as far as being a great example of uh, American filmmaking in the 70s and just and, and a, a masterclass in acting from these two guys who, uh, you know, you could say what uh, what you like about their careers towards the end. I, I don't think Hackman made too many missteps, but um, it, it's just amazing to watch. Uh, so, yeah, I know that I'll be uh, I'll be selling this one to anybody that'll buy it from here on out. So It's a good one. It's, a, it's nice to see two, I think, of the greats of American film at a time before Pacino, unfortunately, took it over the top and kind of became 
too fixated on, you know, a certain kind of role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, it's very good. So, and that's all I got on Scarecrow. All right. So, number three, uh, this could be a, I don't know, just the fanboy coming out in me, but I had never seen a PTA's debut with Part 8. Oh, nice. And that is my number three. It is really good. You know, it's the kind of movie where, like, if somebody made this movie and it was, like, their best movie, like, that could be, like, wow, like, he made a really good movie in his career. Like, he made Heart 8. Yeah. The fact that this is, like, a debut is is really cool. It, it's nothing amazing. Like, it's not, like, you know, it, it doesn't do anything really groundbreaking, but it's just really, it's low-key. I love that, it, it, you know, it's about a, a guy who, uh, you know, he, he's down on his luck, and a somebody else, like, you know, an older gentleman takes him under his wing and kind of shows him the ropes about gambling and, and stuff like that. And I love that it takes place in Reno. Yeah, and, uh, it was, like, yeah. In Vegas. Um, I, you know, it's kind of a, just a low, more, more of a low key like situation, but as, as usual, kind of like, you know, a lot of Cohen movies and stuff like that, like blood simple or something like things go wrong and get worse and worse. And it's, it's just a really, I guess you can call it a crime movie in a sense, but it's, uh, it's just got a really cool feel to it. It's got that PTA. It doesn't have his big visuals that he kind of got to be known for, but you know, it's his first film. Um, but it's just really competently made, and it's it's easy to watch, and it's fun to watch, and it's got uh, Samuel L. Jackson in there as well, who he plays a character who kind of reminds me of the character he plays in Jackie Brown, where he's just kind of creepy whenever he's yeah. on screen. Yeah. He he's yeah. just got this a bit of menace to him, you know. Just even when you see him, it's like, uh, what's he gonna do? And um, Philip Baker Hall is awesome in it. He is so good. It's so nice to see him get to be a lead and not a supporting actor. That's what I mean. Like him leading the way. was yeah. great to see. It was really cool. John C. Riley is, I've, I've always liked John C. Riley. Me be too. it comedy, drama, anything. He, he seems to be able to do it all. Uh, Paltrow's in there. Like it's a really good cast for, for a debut film. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's great. You know, it, it's PTA. If, if you like him and you haven't seen it, check out the, uh, the old debut. It's, it's not going to be, you know, Master, there will be blood style, but it's it's a good, you know, nice little movie. I agree, and I think I love too that it happens before the Nevada um, got a complete facelift. Oh yeah, definitely. right. It feels like that kind of desperate, hungry, late eighties, early nineties Nevada. Yeah. So. Definitely. Yeah, very cool. Um, as much as my number four was dominated by women my no i almost said number 12 <laughs> i just spoiled my film my number three is dominated <laughs> entirely by men uh and it's and again kelly you talked about um last boy scout like everyone's fucking seen it except me man yeah. i felt that way to the end of the earth having been the only schmuck who had never seen 12 angry men 1957 <laughs> nice yeah. so yeah man i mean lumet's a guy that <sighs> Fantastic filmmaker, certainly. And a guy that we talked about filmmakers that worked great late in their careers. He did that with Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Yep. Um, one of the reasons it took me so long to see this was I had seen the Friedkin version years ago. And I just felt like, I don't need to see it. I kind of know what's what. Um, and then I just was like, man, I, you know, I really should see this. man. It's Dumet. It's got that cast. I had just rewatched. Um, I've always been a huge fan 
of Martin Balsam. He's one of my favorite character actors. I've always been a fan of Todd. Todd puts in a really great, you know, human performance in this, <laughs> just full of kind of warmth. And and I'm a big fan of Lee J. Cobb. Um, oh yeah. You know, I had I had just rewatched um, uh, Exorcist. No, Exorcist, right? Because Scott's in part three. Uh, George C. Scott's in part three, yeah. Yeah, so I just rewatched Exorcist because Cobb is in that. It's got E.G. Marshall. Um, It's just, you know, it's a very simple premise. You know, you take 12 men of varying degrees of anger and you put them in a room on a hot day and they got to decide the fate of someone, a, a boy's, a man, a young man's life that's been accused of murder. Um very simple premise, but very difficult in execution because you need to – you're boxing yourself in and you're forced to have unbelievable dialogue throughout. And he colors all these characters not in a way that makes them feel like just archetypes that are meant to clash, but he makes them all feel like they're all working their own angles, coming from their own point of view. It just an amazing film. I think I think it was his debut film, but I mean, yeah. this guy wired a wire just made so many great films. And I think when we talk about great American directors, you know, Lumet really does deserve to be in the conversation because he's made so many great films. And this was just the first of many feathers in his cap. So that's uh, number three. Oh, yeah. Uh, cool. Nice. And and it's um. It's just amazing what he uh, what he pulled off there, and the way that it's set up. You know, it's uh, because I'm I'm almost a hundred percent sure that that started off as a play. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And uh, you know the way that it's set up, it's it, you know it, he he does it like because he came from the theater as well. Yep. Uh, but uh, he he knew how to to do with the camera what needed to be done in order to make it not to make it you know come outside of being uh, just like the proscenium march and all that sort of thing. Absolutely. Uh, and it's great, uh, great, well written, and uh, great looking, and great performances from everybody. Everyone. Really, that's one. That's one of those movies where you talk about, you know, it's like an actor's, it's an actor's uh, piece. You know, they love, for, they live for that kind of thing. Well, he goes twelve deep, man. I mean, no one like usually when you got a cast and you're trying to split it up uh, between a pretty large ensemble, there's usually a weak link or two. But no, everyone, everyone in this film just crushes yep. it. And if you've held off on this film because you think, ah, vanilla, kind of old Hollywood, you'd be sorely mistaken because the writing is just crackling from the first scene until the end. And it's one of those things you've seen so many times since. But to see a real pro do it and to do it as his first film, like we were just talking about with Heart 8, it really is testament to uh, Lumet. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um. Uh, going over to number two, and we're going to get on the boat again and head back over to Italy. <laughs> uh, where in the year is 1957, the director will be one Mr. Federico Fellini. Yes. And the movie is going to be The Knights of Cabaria, which nice. is the way that I pronounce it. I know some people pronounce it Cabaria. I pronounce it Cabaria because every time that uh, a character would uh, would call out Julieta Messina's character's name, it's always Cabaria. There you go. So that's why I, that's why I pronounce it that way. Uh, speaking of Juliet Messina, Julieta Messina, uh, she is infinitely charming. Uh, oh. Even when she's going psycho on someone, which she does a, a nice few times on this. Um there's, a, there's lots of nice fat hookers in this movie. Which is, uh, speaking of fixations, Fellini loves them, <laughs> loves them big yes, women, man. Yes, he does. Yes, he does, buddy. <laughs> um, it's, it's a movie, I think, that's about searching for connection and letting people into your life. And I think that 
it's it's heartbreaking and life affirming simultaneously. Uh, it's um, it's got a lot of uh, a, a lot of the fatini. F- f- that's my Man. favorite pasta. I was about to um, say, buddy, I could go for some fatini right now, and it's almost <laughs> midnight. <laughs> uh, it has a lot of uh, Fellini's touches, you know, like the pageantry of life, the people dancing, marching happily along. Uh, it, it's still got, a, uh, it's you know, it's got a great impact. You could see what's going to happen. You know what's happening. You know what's going to happen in this movie. You could see it coming a mile off because you know the character, but at the same time, it still feels so fresh, and you're dying for this this uh, outcome to not be what you know it's going to be. Um, I'm probably giving away more than I should be, but at the same time, I mean, like I said, you could see this thing coming from square one, uh, but it's just, it's absolutely stunning. It's, this is probably, as of right now, this is probably my favorite Fellini film. How, which ones have you seen so far? I've seen, uh, let me think, uh, Eva Deloney, uh, Variety Lights, uh, Eight and a Half, This, uh, da, 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 La Dolce Vita. Uh, I Satyricon. Satir- I mean, not um, Satyricon yet. Uh, sorry, I meant to say um, not Satyricon. Um, Amarcord. Not yet. Okay. No, cool, no. Cool. I, I'm, I'm, it's another. He's another one of those guys that I'm trying to. I'm trying to work through uh, as chronologically as I can. Uh, forgive so, me. You did say La Strada, yeah. La Strada was this year. Which this feels well. I've never seen Knights of Cabiria, but. The themes I feel like from what you've said are very. Uh, I got to see this one. Feel very similar to La Strada. Um. No. Or just letting someone in your life. No. And, no. Well, okay. I yeah, it's it's not really like that because I think that in the. Uh, I don't think that Juliana Messina's character in La Strada is as. She's not as centrally focused on as in this one because it's more of a quinn with her in a yeah. supporting role in La Strada. Yeah. yeah but but the, the 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 thing there is where you know she's she's the supporting role but she's you know she's the linchpin of the emotional core of the film uh here it's more like watching this person it's kind of reaching out even though you know okay so let's let's face it you know cabaria or cabaria now i'm doing it uh, is a you know she's a hooker she's you know this is what she does so for her to find love or to think that she's found love or any of that you know emotional attachment is kind of difficult in that in that uh, in that lifestyle or you would imagine that it is um, so you know to watch her go through this thing because she's she's a hopeless romantic at heart even though she's uh, she's willing to to drop down and you know get in somebody's face real fast. Uh, and she's always she's getting screwed constantly by the people in her life, uh, and you're just watching her kind of crawl out of that, uh, and you know get into a place where she comes to uh, you know acceptance. And it's it's one of those movies you can't really you can't do tremendous justice to because it, there's given away. I don't want to give away too much, even though it's not really that integral to have this being a, a plot driven film but there's um uh, see that that's okay we can people got to see it and then they can talk yeah you it. really you really do have to see it to get exactly what i'm talking about but i think that once you do uh it'll the impact will the impact will hit you i gotta see uh, that and the white sheik still man i, I oh just, that i've seen the white sheik yeah and i've seen uh there was another one that i can't think of <clears> off the top <throat> of my head but um 
Anyway. Have you ever seen Mama Roma? Uh, no, not yet. No. Interesting. Again, Pasolini doing his take on the uh, Hooker with the Heart of Gold. Ah. So, yeah. I'll have to get that one in there. Yeah, I'm on. Cool. All right. What are we on? Two. Yeah, sir. And we're going to 1982 with Van Ed <laughs> And it is uh, <laughs> uh, Fitzcarraldo. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Um, this was a insane movie. It's one of those movies where, you know, the, the making of it has been, you know, regarded as the making of is better than the actual movie. And I could see, you know, maybe not better, but how it's how it was insane um, because it's about Klaus Kinski playing uh, Brian Fitzgerald, and he wants to build an opera house in the jungle, and he wants to take a boat over a big old hill to do it. And it's Klaus Kinski being Klaus Kinski and going nuts <laughs> with Herzog behind the camera. It's just an amazing accomplishment. I feel like. Um, I don't know. It's probably my favorite Herzog at this point. Um, there's still a, f- a few I need to see, uh, kind of heavy hitters. I, I haven't seen uh, Cobra Verde yet, um, stuff like that. Yeah, but, neither uh, I. Uh, yeah, this was a really well-made film about you know passion and and you know kind of uh, obsession. Obsession and and yeah, but even like you know ruthlessness. Like he, the, you know, he would do anything to to get this done. Yeah. Like even hurt people and you know he wouldn't he had no dis no regard for anyone like it's it, it just like i need to get this done and it will be done and it's insane and seeing how they made it you know it's it's crazy like i could only i i haven't seen the uh, i gotta watch the documentary still on the making of it but just watching it you can see like man this must have been insane to even attempt uh to make this movie but yeah it's Herzog and Kinski at, at their best, I think, and they did a lot of good stuff, in my opinion. And uh, it's amazing, <laughs> amazing film. Nice. <clears throat> okay, number two, uh, another one from the Criterion Collection. This is a film that, again, the cover for a long time really, I was just kind of um, drawn to it, and it was this beautiful hand painted cover, and um, I couldn't. I just yeah, I, I kept coming back to it, putting it in my cart and taking it out. I just hadn't heard a whole lot about it from people in the community. You know, there's certain titles that when they come out, people kind of talk about them a lot, or just you know, classics, whether it's Antonioni or um, you know Ozu or certain filmmakers, Fellini, just tend to get talked about more than others. And this was a film that up until late in the year, I was oh well, later in the year. Um, I was certain would have been to my number one and I couldn't wait to talk about it more and I couldn't wait to implore everyone to see it um, because I think it's such a beautiful, tender, poetic film and it's 1983's El Norte, Gregory Nava's film. Cool. It's, uh, or The North, uh, a.k.a. Uh, it's, man, it's so good. It's um, about two... A brother and sister, they're Mayan Indian peasants, and they are forced to leave their country, which I believe they're from Guatemala. Yeah, they're from Guatemala. And some shit goes down. They have to leave there and go north, first to Mexico and then to the United States. It's a film that is as timely now as it was 30 years, 30 plus years ago. Um, 
there's you know a beauty and innocence of purity to the film um and because of the tenderness of the film you it, it, it's that thing where you have as you're watching it you have this feeling in your stomach you're waiting for the other shoe to drop and um yeah it's and i would be very interested for kelly to see it if he hasn't already because when it gets to the north uh it is los angeles um so yeah i think like i said it's a film that is as timely now as it was then and it's a shame nava didn't do more in this vein um i know that he worked commercially you know he made selena and frida you know frida's cool um he did a lot of films thankfully of the 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 credits he does have a lot of them focus on um what I feel is a, is a grossly underrepresented uh, cultural group in American cinema, and that's Latinos, because they comprise such a large percentage of the population, and they're woefully underrepresented uh, in films. So, yeah, it's a great, great film. El Norte, buy it. It's so fucking good. It will. It's beautiful. I was going to spoil something, but I won't. So you you mentioned it when you were uh, visiting down here, and it it was. Uh Sound very, very intriguing. It it's it feels a bit like if if Jodorowsky was like, I'm gonna take all like the gross out and surrealism aspects of my film and just make like a really poetic, kind of beautiful, simple story. Yeah. You know. It's really good, man. I love it. I I, I find myself thinking about the film sometimes just doing day to day things. It's just it's a really tender film and it's good, man. It's really good. I love the art they have for it on the Criterion. Me too, man. That's the thing. Like for for so long, I just kept looking at the cover. I was like, man, I love this cover. Yeah, it's beautiful. Definitely. So, I hope everyone goes out and sees. It. And when you do, let's talk about it in the group. I need more people to have seen this film so I can talk about this film. That Criterion sale's got to get. Yeah, there. man, that's got to get <laughs> scooped. I got to buy it now. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, number two. All righty, and Big one. on. On that number one tip, uh, we are heading all the way back to the silent era uh, film by Fred Neumeyer and Sam Taylor. Uh, this is 1923's Safety Last. With oh, the, nice. With the wonderful Harold Lloyd, who is one of those guys who, I've said this before, he never, he, I never really cared a great deal for the persona that he uh, he usually played in uh, in a lot of his movies because it was kind of like that, like oh shucks kind of thing um but this movie is just outstanding in every way shape and form uh it's technically unbelievable this is for anybody that doesn't know safety last is uh the story of, uh, this is the film that harold lloyd made where he's hanging off a clock at, at the end of the by the end of the film he's hanging off the clock and you know very very really could have died uh filming the uh the action in the scene um and you can kind of tell uh, that the whole movie is kind of just passing time to get up to that point of the film. Uh, but it, it, it passes time, but it passes it wonderfully. Um, like I said, it's technically unbelievable. You have, uh, you know, people getting confounded by tennis nets. Um, <laughs> it's, it, this, this thing is never dull. Everybody focuses on the, the, the climb up to the, uh, the clock and all that, that, that action. But it, there's there's so much visual wit in in every frame of this movie that you know you really really do gain an appreciation for uh, for Lloyd as a um, as a comedian and absolutely should be 
included as one of the greats with the Keatons and Chaplins of the world. I've never seen um, any Lloyd films, man. I haven't seen much myself. I've only seen this. I think the Freshman, or I think it was the Freshman. That sounds right. Movie star or mo- in at in the movies at the movies. I can't remember what it was off the top of my head. The title of it, but I've only seen a few of them. They've all been good, uh, but this really blew my socks off, man. Uh, there's a reason why everybody goes gaga for this, and I think that it's outside of just that uh, that scene, that famous scene, that clock uh, sequence. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, and you know a lot of people. Let's face it, a lot of people shy away from silent movies uh, because they they tend to be like, well, there's no dialogue, so there's nothing there to keep me awake. It's just a piano playing. Da, 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 da. And yeah, sometimes on the on the scores they tend to like Mickey Mouse the the uh, the cuts, you know, like with the the drummel hat, the drum the whip out a snare drum on uh, somebody landing on their ass or something like that. Uh, so you can kind of understand where they, where they come from with being a little bit cutesy with the scores sometimes. But at the same time, I mean, I think to really appreciate what you got now, you kind of have to look back at the stuff that these guys did and the, 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 and the, the frontier work that these people were doing in the medium and the, the paths they were carving out and, you know, the visual language that they were and it's just it's unbelievable it's a, it's a it's stunning to me every time that i sit down with one of these movies and uh, and check them out especially the silent ones which i've i've and i'll be honest i've been that guy too i've been you know kind of leery of getting into some some silent movies but I, i'm completely i've gotten over that completely by this point and I now seen, I'll, I'll eat them up i haven't seen any lloyd or uh keaton myself. oh man gotta get on keaton, dude Keaton is king. You yeah, got listen, yeah. Kelly. Please, please, please. Within the next month, see <laughs> Sherlock Jr. Really? Oh, I know Keaton's gonna hate me. Yeah, man. You better see. You better cram some Ozu <laughs> and some Keaton now. I've. I, I'll be honest. I haven't seen a ton of Keaton myself. I've, I've only, only seen about seen, ten. Well, I've only seen his short works, and I've seen a couple of uh, a couple of the the uh, the full lengths, like Three Ages, and that. Uh, I think the next, one, the next one I'm looking the next one that I'm looking forward to because it's another one I'm trying to do them chronologically as as best as I can, which is probably a horrible way to do it, but it's just kind of like that. It's kind of that stickler in me. Um, yeah. So I think my next one is going to be Our Hospitality, which I know That's a good awesome one. Fabian. I know Awesome Fabian reps for that one hard, but then again, he reps for Keaton hard all around. So Keaton is king, man. Like Keaton, yeah, he really is amazing. Fucking Titan, like so many people that we love owe him like a pound of their flesh man he is yeah. man he is just there's not too many who have contributed more to film and still continue to influence and contribute even posthumously than yeah. keaton you've got to see so it bad. i feel so bad right now listen i only i only saw my first keaton like three or four years ago yeah so don't uh get to it man fuck just at least yeah, no, you, you will you will your your eyes will be open the, the heavens will split apart and the sun will come shining down you'll love nice. it you totally nice. will and that is uh, my number one all right well all right my number one is uh i like uh some grit and i like some some southern some southern grit <laughs> and uh Toddy over there already brought his name up, but a different movie. But mine is uh, by John Sayles. And ah. It is Lone Star. Man, this is nice. a good one. Very nice. nice. 
Yeah, I fell in love with this movie. It's it's I you know, going into it I thought it was gonna be something else. I thought it was gonna you know, I was kinda looking for like a kind of neo noir, like, you know, action not action, but you know, more of a bloody movie. And uh this is it's got that, you know, but it, it's not as big. It's it's just it's a drama about uh, you know, Chris Cooper plays a uh, a deputy and he finds you know, there's a uh a skeleton out in the desert and he, if somebody finds it and he has to kind of investigate it and through investigating it and you kind of go through his life, he kind of lives in the shadow of his, of his father and, you know, stuff like that, who, who was a deputy or a sheriff before him. And, um, you know, you kind of go through his life and, and he kind of has to deal with everything that's happened to him throughout his life, you know, in dealing with this, this mystery of this corpse or, you know, skeleton and it's just really well done. It's it's got great performances from everyone, all the way down to McConaughey and, and Cooper and Pena. It's it's just a great film that really takes its time. It, it's you know it doesn't feel rushed at all. It's gorgeous looking. It's everything I want a movie to be. It, it has in it. It's so good. Nice. Have you guys yeah, both seen it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got to revisit yeah. it though. I saw last time I saw it was on VHS probably. When I was first sort of seriously getting into film, like I'd always been into film and, you know, Asian film and stuff. But it was from the time I was spending a little more time at home and less out on the streets. And uh, I don't mean it's like a hustler or anything seedy like that. <laughs> Just, you know, run a wild. Um, that and, Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, that Midnight Cowboy. And uh, I would just, you know, rent three or four films, kind of more stuff that I'd read about in the newspaper about from the film festivals and things like that. And Lone Star, I'm pretty sure played Tiff that year and people were going kinda gaga for it. And I grabbed it and really dug it, but I think I dig it even more now. Yeah, dude, the, yeah. the romance in it, the mystery, like it, there's it's got everything going for it and it's all well done. That must be like a Davy Mac like boner film. Oh yeah. He, <laughs> he, he repped hard when he knew when he found out I hadn't seen it, he was just begging me, like, please just watch it, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really, it's one of those movies. I saw it when it uh, when it first came out on VHS, and uh, I, I rewatched it just this past year. I think this past year. Uh, either way, uh, it's one of those movies that I think was kind of mishandled in the uh, in the advertising. So a lot of people were expecting more like a noir with like crime, like Red Rock West kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. That's what I was. Uh, that's what I was thinking it was going to be. But it's completely not that. I mean, there no. there's there are elements you know of that sort of thing in there but it's not like you know it's not like a big shootout kind of movie with all kinds of you know exactly action. that that's kind of what i was expecting i was excited to see that because i was really just in the mood for that and i was like yeah, yeah. give me that yeah. southern gritty action you know and and it wasn't that but man it was something totally different but the fact that it completely worked and i was expecting something else tells you like how good it was oh absolutely uh, i'm glad you like it man oh man i did, loved it you didn't get you Chance didn't. Boudreaux, but that's okay this time. Yeah. <laughs> now, I got to ask you, like, have you both seen, speaking of sales now, I haven't seen this one either, I, and I don't even know how to pronounce it. Is it Mate One? Mate One. Mate I've one. never seen Mate it. One. I've always yeah. meant to, man, because I think yeah, the Silver and Gold Boys covered it some time ago. It's about the miners, right? Yeah. yeah. In, I in West it. Virginia. Is, is it I've heard or? great things. Oh, my God. It. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's outstanding. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. see it. All right, because I yeah after Lone Star I I, I want to really get on that one so soon yeah soon yeah. for each one soon come soon, soon come, come. <laughs> but yeah uh, Lone Star amazing nice nice very nice um, 
my number one is a film that somehow, if you've been kind of keeping score behind the scenes, not even behind the scenes, I guess as you're listening, um, you'd see, you think, man, this is so strange. Will doesn't have a single film from Italy in his top ten. And this is where Roberto Rossellini jumps in, says, Paul Hughes called your shot. He said this would be your number one of the year, and it is, and it's Rome Open City. Nice. Man, <laughs> this film. I had never seen any Rossellini, and I kept saying to myself, I got to see more neorealist film. I love the stuff I've seen from De Sica, but I'd only seen maybe three or four. Todd and I were talking about Rossellini and De Sica and all the guys early on at the new wave, uh, not the new wave, uh, the neorealism. And I was like, finally, I just got to fucking dig in. Because I think Todd was too. And I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. So, and I was talking to Paul about Rossellini. Just one of those things. And uh, this film is, and I'd said this on the air. It, it feels like, uh, what's it called? Um, Melville, um, Army of Shadows, and um, um, Battle of Algiers are heavily indebted to this film. It's made right on the heels of World War II. The country's still in ruins. Um, and I, I can't, I don't even know where to begin with this film. Like, it, it's such a, it's, they had to like cobble the film together. They had to sneak film out to even film the film. Because um, it takes place in Nazi occupied Rome. Mm-hmm. And again, talking about scope, there's huge, not just life changing, but country and cultural changing, culturally changing things happening around these people as they're trying to navigate through their day to day lives. Children, priests, mothers, husbands, widows, you know, entertainers. It's them navigating through everything. And the stakes are always so high in this film because at any point, things can go fucking pear shaped. Mm-hmm. Um, I spoke about Mama Roma earlier. Anna Magnani is the female lead in this. And, man, she has a scene. And, Todd, I think you know what scene I'm, I'm referring to. I believe so. Oh, man. There's a moment. It's just – it's gut-wrenching. It's um, it's an unbelievable – it's an unbelievable moment, uh, an unbelievable performance from her and from everyone in the film. I think it's, it's why I love – Italian film so much and why I love the culture so much is in spite of everything, the willingness to live and to, to do things a certain way. Um, uh, yeah, this film, like I, it's a must own. And I, I just, mm. I implore everyone to see this, um, because of its importance to film and to not allow art to be stifled in time of war. Um, I can't overstate how important this film is and how, how much it spoke to me. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I was gonna uh, was gonna say is how it how it uh, plays into um, uh, being a document of the time, yes, and being a document of you know mm-hmm. the attitude and the people and uh, you know the situation in and of itself. Uh, it's just amazing. And now you you've made me. I, I need to rewatch it again now. So. The priest, the priest character is tremendous in it. His his his. I think the closing shot. I think is him. I believe, yeah. Yeah, it's pow, one of my favorite closing shots in film. Uh, have you had a chance to see it, Cal? I have not, but it sounds amazing. And the fact that it was made in 1945, yeah. like, man, like, right it really on. was right on the heels. Yeah, man. 
yeah, it's it's something else. It's really, and I mean, this you know, Rossellini's dad opened, I think, the first theater in Italy. It, this this guy means so much to film. I mean, the French New Wave, you know, everyone that was making Kitchen Sink, everyone that was kind of doing realism in film, you know, can look at people like him and De Sica and and you know, people like Ray and Italy in India, you know, really indebted to people like Rossellini. So there you nice. go. So there are the top tens. Um, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back with our 11 to 30s. So we will be right back. It is time to get into our um, 11 to 30, or at least our 11 to 20, depending on how uh, how long we talk about these films. Uh, we're going to go in the same order we have been. Hope you've been enjoying the show so far. It's been uh, great. And I would say, I'm sure someone will remind us, because I'll certainly forget, um, once the show comes out, if people want to see our lists after a while, maybe we can post them somewhere so people can um, you know, have them. I think we'll wait for a little bit, though, just so... There can be some suspense with, with the list of the show and so forth, but maybe we can put our lists up at some point, uh, a few weeks after the show or something. Um, so we're going to kick it over to the man in the PA. Uh, Totter, what uh, what do you have in the uh, the Snake Eyes spot? Uh, we got, uh, from 1955, Ingmar Bergman's Smiles of a Summer Night. Oh, yes. I was blown away by this thing. Um, because... And there's another one of those conversations we've had where a lot of people, when they think of Burton, they think of gloom and doom. They think of ultra artsy, you know, sort of... Dry, inaccessible. Yeah. They think of, like, you know, Sprockets, the old SNL skit. (laughs) Uh, That sort of thing. I wish they made a movie of that, man. Yeah, man. Either that or, or, uh, like, when Uncle Floyd played uh, Hour of the Wolf on uh, Midnight Horror Theater or whatever the hell it was on SCTV (laughs) back in the day. Um but this is really this is really the opposite side of that. This is a little bit more light, and it's more um, more about you know sucking in life. And uh, you have Harriet Anderson, who is absolutely absolutely phenomenal uh, in this thing. Uh, the humor really really hits. And uh, like I said, is that it's that side of Bergman that most people don't uh, think of when they think of Bergman. They think of Persona and all that other sort of thing. Uh, not that that's bad or you know in any way, shape, or form. But um, exactly. Uh, it's got uh, interesting characters, and it doesn't. This is the kind of movie. It doesn't really go at its questions directly. Uh, it, it lets it come out of the people and their actions, and that's to me that's better. That's a a more engaging type of storytelling, or a, a more engaging type of filmmaking, um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, there is for those of you who are interested in this sort of thing. There's some magic wine with uh, breast milk and horse semen. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, you get that one in there. Uh, I guess it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, to my, to my point that this is unlike, you know, what what people think of as Bergman, it does get a little Bergman-y uh, later on with some of the dialogue. Like, uh, here's uh, one of the lines was, uh, 
we're denied the love of loving. It's that sort of thing. But yeah. uh, outside of that, I mean, this is just a, a really, really great movie. You're, you, I, I cannot imagine how you couldn't have a good time with this and just marvel at uh, at Bergman's uh, mastery in this thing. It's it's absolutely outstanding. He is and, uh, a master yeah, filmmaker. Absolutely, 100%. Um, and that's my, uh, my number 11, Smiles of a Summer Night. Alright, uh, 11 here. We got, directed by Sam Furstenberg. <laughs> <laughs> and you get some, uh, you get some Steve James. Yes. You get some Dudikoff. Sweet. You get some, uh, you get some Avenging Force. Wicked. Yeah, you do. Um, this is a crazy movie. It's a, uh, canon film. And they put a lot of money into this one. Invasion USA sequel, man. Yeah, um... He, yeah, he, he plays uh, he plays that character, and it's uh, Steve James is running for for office. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and so a group of people that dress up in funny clothes don't like that, and uh, they do some bad things to him. And a uh, Dudikoff is there to avenge him with some force. With some force, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's amazing. It's an over-the-top action movie from the 80s, canon. You can't really go wrong. It's got an amazing scene with um, Dudikoff and a young child falling off a roof. <laughs> and it looks like both of their necks break, but they're fine. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's it's Furstenberg. And it's, it's, I mean, what can you say about a canon film from the 80s that has Dudikoff and James? It's fun. It's ridiculous. Have a blast with it. It's over the top. It's got guys in leather masks and and demolition outfits from WWF, and it's it's just a great time. <laughs> Go have fun with it. It's pretty dark. It gets a little dark um, with some of the deaths and who dies, but uh, it's a fun fun time. Yes. And if I could add, you get some uh, John P. Ryan action in there. Yeah. yeah. And I and I think isn't uh, Mark Alamo in it? The tall uh, skinny guy? Yes, yes, he is. He isn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very nice. Excellent. Yeah, good times. Excellent. Uh, my number 11 is one that I'd meant to see for some time. Never got around to it. Um, and then I couldn't stop thinking about it when I did finally see it. It's got one of my fellow countrymen uh, in the lead. He had a great decade when people talk about the runs in the 70s, and that's Donald Sutherland. And as great as he was in the film, his female lead, his counterpart, was even better. She crushes it. And a lot of people, I think, have lost sight of how amazing of an actress she was. And I'm talking about Jane Fonda in 1971's Alan J. Peculiar Jam, Clute. Nice. Yes. Clute is so, so, so good. Um, Peculiar was, uh, you know, his work in the 70s is just, it's it's so, so good. Um this film, to me, you know, neo-noir worked in a way that I think stuff like Cutter's Way and Night Moves do, and that it doesn't really give you all the answers, and then some things are kind of unclear and messy, and they don't fit neatly and nicely. Um, and you're left pondering all the possibilities of things and what they mean and motivations and things like that. But um, it's, it's fantastic. And like I said, Fonda, you know, in the past seven, eight years, I've had a chance to see some of her work, like coming home and this and some other stuff. And man, she was one for the ages. Um, 
you know, and Sutherland's great too. He he kind of takes a bit of a backseat there. Roy Scheider. Um, if you haven't seen Clute, you got to do yourself a favor and check it out, man. It's it's dynamite. Cool, cool. Would you I say that this is? Would you say that this is a close to uh, or has similarities to like Giallo or? Mm, kind of, yeah, kind of. It does. I mean, not directly, but yeah, no. There's some jolly esque things happening and some voyeurism and you know it um yeah because uh the guy goes missing and then a guy who a bit of a fish out of water comes in to be act as detective even though he's not a detective he's in a strange city so yeah it's definitely got to sort of giallo elements to it so yeah it's, it's a good one man and jane jane fonda has an amazing female mullet in the film yeah she does yeah man so there it is. What a party in the rear. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Uh, my number 12, uh, I don't really get a lot of documentaries on my list, but I had to get this one in there. Uh, this is coming out of 1968, the Maisel's brothers, and it is salesman. Um, it's, a, it's basically, it follows a, a group of uh, Bible salesmen around as they're trying to, to sell their wares and how they live their lives and all that sort of thing. And it's the kind of thing that you don't really see a hell of a lot of these days. Um, it's a classical documentary and structure and approach. Uh, it's, you know, a peek inside the, the life of, uh, of these guys. And it, it, this to me is the sort of thing that I prefer to, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be like, I don't want to be naysay in modern documentaries and how they all seem to have you know uh, an agenda and, and, and that sort of thing. I'm not going to get into that conversation but this is the sort of thing that I prefer to that. Uh, I'll put it that way. Um, and this is amazingly well made. It's you know fascinating because these are just you know five or six guys who are just if you saw them eating in a diner you wouldn't think twice about them but then you follow them and, and their lives and you get involved in it and you start to peel away the layers so you start to relate to them because you know everybody has these same sort of issues everybody has these same sort of struggles and you know the Maisel's brothers were uh some of the best at, uh, at getting that shit done and they got that shit done with this it's an outstanding documentary uh if you like documentaries at all um you really should uh, be checking this one out and i and, think oh, yeah go sorry. ahead no 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 no. go ahead i insist no no i was i was pretty much wrapping it up anyway so uh yeah go ahead <laughs> I was going to say, I think one of the things I like about you and I have spoken about this before is I love how, you know, 70s and 80s and even 90s documentarians didn't feel the need to be intrusive or inject themselves and their personality into their documentaries or to craft almost like a dramatic narrative. Exactly. Exactly. They They just let the the, the thing subject kind of tell its own tale. There's but, a concept, I mean, right? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there, there's always going to be there's always construction, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but it was, you know, it was more about, you know, finding the, the construction was about finding the story in the footage that was shot, rather than here's our story, let's shoot stuff that's going to fit it. Yes. And that to me is the big difference between then and today, and especially if you look at a guy like Frederick Wiseman. This is kind of getting off topic now, but. Uh, if you look at a, a documentarian like Frederick Wiseman, who you know he still he still says that he has an agenda. His, his movies are considered like institutionals, uh, more or less. But um, but they're very uh, you know they're very you wouldn't think that these things would be as compelling as they are. But but it's just they're 
endlessly fascinating. Slice of life, right? I mean, it's well, stuff. They, they are, they are, but it's not just that. It's it's you're you're watching these guys because these are the guys who you know really kind of um, created the form. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I know, there was right. there was Robert Flaherty back, you know, way back and all that sort of thing, and you know, getting up, you get you get to, you get into now, and then uh, um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, but um, that's all right. Um, but yeah, this is a good documentary. <laughs> I'll just I'll quit while I'm ahead. So uh, that's it. That is my number twelve. All right, uh, my number twelve. He is a, uh, I guess, kind of a vanity project. Uh, not completely, but uh, it's almost there. And it was released by Vinegar Syndrome on Blu-ray this year. And it is a what-the-fuck-of-all-proportions. Um, it's called Runaway Nightmare. And is this the one with the train? With the Oh, no, no, that's uh, Night Train to Terror. Oh, yeah, nobody but you. Yeah. What is it? The... <laughs> the amazing opening number? Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to, no pun intended, or actually pun intended, derail. But... <laughs> <laughs> Runaway Nightmare is about two worm farmers who, <laughs> uh, <laughs> who uh, stumble upon um, some people burying a body out in the desert in Nevada, and uh, they try to go see, you know, what's going on. And they end up getting caught by the people who buried them, who happen to be a, a group of women cultists. <laughs> and um, and they get caught up in a uh, thing about uh, stealing uh, plutonium from the mafia. Oh, my Jesus. God. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's got the, the star, the director, the writer, is a man named Mike Cartel who um, is definitely not the greatest actor I've ever seen. And um, he puts in a once-in-a-lifetime performance. <laughs> he goes for it. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it's ridiculous. And it's got a lot of just dialogue that, man, I, I don't even know. Like, even for people that don't know how to make a movie, how they left some of this stuff in, it, it is so weird and out there. And the story is nuts. And by the time it's over, I, it, it's like one of those fever dream movies. You're like, what happened? How like, did they? Even <laughs> how did they even make this? <laughs> I gotta see this thing, man. Oh man, and it's on blue. Like, <laughs> we live in a great time. <laughs> oh, dude, it's so good. And it, it has no business being on any lists, but it is here. Yes, it does. And, yeah, and it's it's awesome. If you like weird out there movies, uh, check this one out. It's called Runaway Nightmare. It's a crazy fun time. It's not like over the top fun, like you know, like where you're you're gonna be laughing all the time, like it's ridiculous. It's just strange. It's the strangest fucking thing. How, how they even came up with this and then did it. It was supposedly, I guess, filmed like, you know, one of those things where this guy, Mike Cartel, had his friends and they just filmed it when they could and it, somehow it got noticed at some point. And it's um, it's a weird one. It, it, you know, it's, it's one of those just strange you know, obscurities that's out there and it's fun as hell. Cool. You had me hooked at farm, at worm farmers. Yeah. And then you get to the women cultists, and then and you get to the <laughs> plutonium and the mafia, mafia. and mm -hmm. uh, buried bodies in the desert, and 
<laughs> it's a great time. That is a great time. <laughs> it really is. Um, nice. Speaking of great times, my number 12 was the feel-good film of the year for me. Uh, I know I want to say CDR and someone else. Was it Dave Pearson? So a few other people recommended it. Um, it stars one of my favorites, Hal Holbrook, uh, in a lead. And I always get love the chance to see him and do his thing. He's also, you know, because such classy and understated and a um, bit of a plays against cast. Well, not against cast or against type, but uh, let me just tell you what 1979's Natural Enemies, let me synopsize it. Yes. A man, Hal Holbrook, hires five hookers to fulfill a final fantasy before killing himself and his family. Yes. Yeah. So the, wow. <laughs> this is, and Louise Fletcher plays his wife. Bleak. Yeah. Jose Ferrer is in it and he's amazing. It's a really fucking bleak film. Um, it's really good. There's some really, it's dialogue heavy. Um, I think Jeff Canu, the director, um, I think it was actually based on a novel by Julius Horowitz and it feels real to me. Like it feels like this was someone who is speaking from their own experience, obviously not in terms of murdering their family, but just domestic woes, disenchantment, um, being at a certain point in your life when it feels like, you know, kind of like, um, what, um, Cirque did with, um, when he reteamed Stanwick and Fred McMurray in, uh, what was that? There's, there's always tomorrow. I can't remember what it's called now. It's a really cool film, though. One of my favorite kind of underseen Cirque films. But, um, you know, guy who just feels unappreciated by his family. And uh, it gives a lot of the actors in the film a lot of ability to kind of monologue and just kind of talk. And it's a really good film. And it'll stick with you because it's it's heavy duty, man. And you think it's going to go one way and it doesn't go that way. Um, and it's on YouTube. So you can watch it in its entirety. Um, yeah, there you go. Cool, cool. Good. I'm gonna have to get on that. Uh, uh, da, 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 number thirteen. Oh, I am. What's that? I think it's. I think I just remember the, the title. Is it "Make Way for Tomorrow"? No, that can't be it. I'll find the title. Sorry, I'm, that Fred no, McMurray no. film's gonna bother me now. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, jump in when you, when you find it, man. Um, number thirteen is from 1964. Hideo Gosha's Three Outlaw Samurai. Uh, this was a ton of fun. Uh, it's got three very distinct, interesting characters, and they're each following their own path. Um, it's got top-notch camera work, I think. Uh, the fights in this thing, it's obviously a samurai movie. So, uh, lots of samurai fights and, well, sword fights anyway. But, um, the fights feel realistic while still being, uh, yeah, they're, they're. I mean, they're, they're generating a lot of excitement while it still doesn't feel, doesn't feel totally choreographed. You know what I'm saying? Um, there's a bit of rough torture in there, uh, and there's a, a really, really great line of dialogue. Which uh, somebody asks, you know, who are you? And the one guy responds, "Gods of death." So uh, that really hits home uh, for me. Uh, but other than that, uh, yeah, if the title alone doesn't get you, then. Uh, I don't know what will, but it's damn good. Damn good if you like uh, samurai movies at all. There is Always Tomorrow was the film I was thinking of. Okay. Okay. Cool. 
Criterion's done such a good job with like their samurai stuff, and yeah, the three ally samurais, it's awesome. It's yeah, neat. it's it's not it's not one of those ones that you would uh, you would expect to jump out, but it really impressed me. I was you know blown away by it. Yeah, it's good stuff. Okay, thirteen is a movie that I like. <laughs> I rubbed pretty hard for when I saw it, and I even got the cult to cover it on on their show. And uh, I joined them in it and quickly found out that my love for it wasn't uh, universal. And um, it's called Trackdown from 1976 with uh, James Mitchum and Eric Estrada. Yeah, and it's uh, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It's, um, it's very, like, it, it gets pretty dark. I mean, a woman dies with uh, her head in an oven. Uh they, it's basically um, James Mitchum or Jim Mitchum. He he's I forgot where in the Midwest. He's a farmer, and uh, he goes out, and his his sister goes to California to uh, per- pursue acting and all that stuff. And she gets caught up and she gets raped and just all bad things happen. In like the span of the two days, she gets like raped, beaten, drugged. Uh, turned into a prostitute. Um, and so Jim Mitchum has to go out and try to find her and, and save her. And it's the story of Jim Mitchum and uh, Eric Estrada in L.A. Uh, laying down, uh, laying waste to people, trying to get the sister back. And um, lots of people die in horrible ways. And it's a really uh, interesting film. It, it's not, like, you know, good. The action's not great. You know, it's nothing but... It's just unique. Like it's very dark for for what it was. Like considering like Jim Mitchin isn't like the greatest actor in the world. <laughs> uh, you know they really try to give him some like you know heavy scenes and stuff. And Eric Estrada is really good in it. I think he's a, like a legit actor. Like he's, he's good. Have you um, seen Light Blast with him, the uh, Enzo Castellari joint where he drives a dune buggy around town? Oh yes, it's fun. <laughs> it's it's really fun. But yeah, track down. It's nothing great. Like, don't expect anything amazing. The the cold semi liked it, um, but you know, if you want to see a, a different Mitchum, you know, than you're used to, it's it's a fun little watch. Um, but it gets gets pretty dark for what it is. Um, but yeah, that's it for track down. Very nice. Um, number thirteen is a film that Sammy really repped hard for, and uh, I, I know it would make his list if he ever was to make a list. Uh, it's uh, nineteen sixty, made by a country that um, I keep meaning to dig more into because I've always, I'm always astounded by their proficiency with the camera, and it's no. And the poster for this on IMDb is fucking amazing. It's uh, it's I'm gonna pull a Sammy. This one goes out to Sammy. Nyot pravlenio pismo. That's Mikhail Kalatsazov's letter never sent. Oh man! Oh, okay. What? Gorgeous. Man, what Gorgeous. a film! Like they got some stuff shot in this that I have no idea how they got. That fire. That fire, like it melt that lens and that skin. Yeah. Um, and this is the time when cameras were cumbersome. Russian cinematography is just it's just so far ahead of what everyone else was doing with the camera. Um, really cool film, simple setup, and is really astounding uh, and beautiful. Um, 
and you, you know you see Siberia. There's so many shots in this film that are just and the blue looks tremendous, of course. Um, yeah, uh, I, wonderful film. Yeah, I was blown away by how beautiful it looked. Oh yeah, it's one that if you want to show people black and white photography oh. on like a nice TV, this this is a good kind of uh, litmus test to see how. And tell them not to wear sweat. Just don't wear sweatpants when you put it on, <laughs> unless you want them to wear sweatpants. You know. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so that's uh, number thirteen. That poster's so beautiful, man. On IMDb, I'd love to get that one. Cool, cool. All righty, uh, number fourteen. Keeping it in Japan for 2008's Love Exposure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this thing is four hours that fly by. Um, it's uh, you can't describe this movie really, uh, not in in plot terms, but because you'd just be here for days. But uh, it's as irreverent as it is deep. Um, it's tackling you know love and religion in equal measures. Uh, there's some really brutal stuff in this, and it's you know fairly explicit at times, uh, but it's also fairly complex emotionally. Um, this is the kind of movie that, to me, gets handheld camera right. Uh, it's not shaky. It you know it knows yeah. how to, to do it to keep the frame. Um, I love the meta elements in this thing. It's one of those things that you know always gets me you know in a lather, and this movie has it in spades. Uh, there's a couple missteps here and there, uh, but I mean, really, really and truly, this is the, you know love exposure is a, an experience like no other. Um, and plus, you have a, a fantastic and and pretty damn funny Eiko Kaji oh, uh, so good uh, in the middle of there you know you have the the king of the what was he the prince of the panty the, shots the or panty the, peak king, yeah peak yeah panty or panty peak or something <laughs> but watching <laughs> watching him get trained by the old perv and how to you know take sneak peeks oh, of, uh, of girls panties is just absolutely hilarious it's so good the soundtrack's awesome too it really is and you know don't let the four hour runtime you know, put you off well, I was gonna say I I watched Why Don't You Play in Hell for the first time. This year. That was my first movie from that director that I'd seen. Sono, Sion Sono, yeah. Yeah, and I have Love Exposure on Blue. I've had it for like three years now, and that runtime keeps scaring me off. Yeah, I like, no, you, you, don't, you don't feel it that it, You really don't feel it Love that Love Exposure, much. I think, is better than Why Don't You Play in Hell. Really? Okay, because I love Why Don't Play in Hell. Um, I've not seen much of Sono myself, so... Um, I'm just—he's one of those guys. It's hard for me to find a whole lot of stuff on like Netflix and that. So, but uh, yeah, but I—I I, I absolutely love this, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll rip hard for it all day long. Nice, nice, that's awesome. All right, um, okay, so uh, this is a film that it got released on Blue. I'd never heard of it. Um, came from Scorpion releasing. Uh, and it's a prison movie called Short Eyes. Oh, <laughs> Man, yes. This was, it's really, it's really well made. I mean, it's got, it's basically all in one location almost. Uh, you know, it, it, it's basically about um, Bruce Davidson. He plays a, he's a child molester, I guess, uh, you know, and he goes to jail. And it's basically him, you know, interacting with all the inmates in, in the prison. And you kind of get to see how they... It's not all that. That's the overarching story, but you just get to see like a lot of slice of life stuff in the prison. 
um, with these guys. And you got um, who is it that sings? Is it Marvin Gaye? Yeah. Yeah, Marvin Gaye's in there. He's one of the prisoners. And him and uh, I forgot the other guy, but they break into song. And there's a really cool scene where they're singing. Kind of wish there was more of that. Just like because the way it's filmed is kind of just very. Oh no, it's like, Mayfield. Sorry, it's Mayfield. Sorry, my bad. Okay, Curtis Mayfield. Yeah, shame on and me. The way it's filmed is kind of just like kind of just flowing through this room of inmates and going from one group to the next and just showing just a slice of life out of them. You know, it, it's very low key. It, well, except for you know, there's certain parts that aren't, but um, yeah, and it's got a great performance by Bruce Davidson, who I think is kind of underrated. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But this is more of a starring role. He's not in it as much as you'd think, though, as a, as the star. There's parts where he's kind of like out of the jail cell, but um, it's a really it's a different kind of prison drama, I'd say. You know, it's not your typical prison drama, but um, it yeah, it's it's really good. Um, I didn't know what the term short eyes meant until you see it, so that's kind of interesting. Um, but really, really, really good little intimate prison film. Uh, I would definitely recommend that one. And some difficult, um, as a viewer, some difficult decisions. Or not decisions, but it's not a film that gives you easy answers. No, not at all. There's, there's, you know, there's one character that is kind of caught in between the middle of, of two different sides and you see both sides and you see kind of what happens to him as, as he tries to, uh, you know, make both sides happy at the same time. And, um, it's, it's a really, well, and I think well, a lot of those guys weren't even actors. Some of them were, um, but a lot of them weren't even actors and man, they come off really good. Like it's a really real feeling film. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. Uh, there's a there's a young Luis Guzman in the background a lot too, which is pretty fun to see. Yeah, I know. Just to pull the curtain back, uh, we're going to be covering that on the show uh, pretty soon. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm not sure if Sammy's seen it. I'm a big I know, fan. Uh, Silva and Gold uh, covered it recently too. Yeah, and I was good. We were going to cover it sooner, but then they covered it and wanted to give a little bit of time in between and give it. Yeah, that's one of the reasons. Some of the stuff, you know, one of the tricky things about having so many awesome friends that do shows is. You don't want to step on anyone's toes, right? Like someone yeah. covers something, and it's like you want to give it time to breathe and do yeah. their thing, and so we'll wait. Like we've been, we were going to cover Switchblade Sisters so early in our show, and we just never did because other people did, and yeah, you know, it's just the way it goes. But no, Short Eyes is cool, man. I'm looking forward to your review of it. It's going to be good. Yeah, very good, very good. Hopefully, uh, okay. So I'm going to stay Eastern Bloc, and I'm going to stay in the '60s. And I'm going to move to a country that has a pretty cool output I've only gotten into in the past three or four years. And this was, at the time, Czechoslovakia. And it's uh, The Cremator. I was going to do the Czech title, but I'll refrain. There's some uh, consonants crashing together there, and might have a problem with that one. Um, have either one of you seen this film? No, sir. I have not. This is really, really good stuff. It is... Like with a lot of um, Eastern Bloc films, the technical aspects are first rate, um, but it it does some. It's one of those films. I feel like um, good friend Tyler would probably be a big fan of you know being a World War II guy because it looks at um, or not even a World War II, we got a, a war film guy because it, um, it it you start to see the infiltration of. Nazis and Nazis getting power and the Nazi party kind of creeping into the, uh, on the outset of the film, kind of the, the fringes and right 
into the kind of core of the film. Um, but the film itself is about the titular character, the cremator. And uh, he works at this crematorium in the late 30s, and he reads the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And he's a really oily guy who he talks. The, the film, I have, I feel like it was probably a heavily, a uh, big influence on No Way when he made um, I Stand Alone, is it? Yeah. I feel like it's probably. I feel like that this film really did influence that in a lot of ways. Great lead performance. The characters are so greasy and oily and just in terms of not being able to be trusted. Um, but still, you can't kind of take your eyes off him. And his wife is half Jewish and he feels like that's kind of, you know, some things go on. It, it's it's a very good film. And like Czechs were doing a lot of stuff under the curtain at the time. That um, So one of they got away with some of the stuff they did. But uh it's a really cool film that I know some people in our community are big fans of, and uh, there's some a few good releases out there that you can uh, you can get. I know the company that did Daisies, which we're big fans of, they put out a a good copy of it as well. So, yeah, awesome. that's uh, what's that number fourteen? Alrighty, um, we are going back to Italy again. This is the halfway mark, we should say. Yep, yep. Uh, for 1964, Pietro Jeremy's uh, Seduced and Abandoned. Oh, nice. Um, I really like this a lot more than I expected to. Uh, it's pretty funny. It's mostly funny. Uh, there's some horrific imagery in it here and there, but by and large, it's, it's a pretty funny thing. It's kind of looking at... Um, well, the the culture because the guy's daughter gets uh, knocked up, and then how he deals with it, and how he's you know feels like he's losing face in the community and trying to deal with that, and his daughter basically rebelling against him. Um, there's a, a woman, uh, the mother of the uh, the mother of the family in this uh, looks like an old Greek lady who uh, used to be a customer of uh, of mine. So I kind of <laughs> I kind of got a kick out of that. Um, there's a this has a collection of, uh, of faces in it worthy of a Leone film. Um, and it, it's full of those those really great uh, Italian histrionics that, uh, you know, if, if you're not, if you if you if there's something that you haven't seen, it's just it's something to behold to, to watch the, the way that they gesticulate and just go you know, screaming at each other and uh, arms flailing. And it's just one of those things that you, I, I love watching. And this was uh, this was really, really good. Um, I mean, there's not much more to say about the plot that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's seduced and abandoned. Nice, awesome. All right, we are number fifteen. We are in 1976, and it is the last hard men. Man, that's the most GGTMC title ever. <laughs> have you seen this? I never have. It is, uh, yeah, Heston and Coburn. Macho. Yeah. Um, Coburn plays a uh, half-Indian uh, convict, and he escapes uh, basically uh, with a group of, uh, you know, bad guys. And Hard he's man. Yeah. <laughs> and he's on the hunt uh, to uh, basically get Heston, who's the man who put him in jail. And um, it's basically, you know, you've seen it before. It's like two 
old grizzled guys basically you know can they still can you know one's hunting the other and the others you know they're basically hunting each other and um can they still do it do they still got it and um it's it's just your basic you know western violent you know 70s you know uh titan versus titan you know coburn versus heston it's 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 a fun movie it's Interesting to see Coburn playing a half Indian, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's nothing nothing we haven't seen before. But it's just really you know with those two guys in the leads, and you know it's it's got Michael Parks in there, and nice. uh, you know uh, Lord, who who was that? I forgot his name. Larry Wilcox, I believe. Is he? Is that a name? Larry David. I mean, not Larry no. David. I meant Larry Wilcox. I mean, I Larry Wilcox was the captain for chips. I meant to say Larry Bishop. <laughs> I want to see Larry David in a West. Fuck. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Well, yeah. Larry Wilcox, he's in there. Um, yeah, it's just it's a really really solid western. I feel that I don't really feel gets talked about a lot. So there you go. Last Hard Men. Nice. So. I got to say, I'm kind of proud of myself because I, I always lament, maybe am I watching too much junk? Am I not? 14 of my 30 films are black and white on my list this year. So Nice. Yeah, I feel like that's good. Um, well, we're getting into some fun stuff pretty soon. Um, so this film was one that I got at my library. Somehow I'd never even heard of it. And it was around like December 29th or 30th. So I really only had like, I should know it was the 31st. When I watched it, I think it was the last film I watched, the second last film I watched of uh, 2014. I've already mentioned this filmmaker, but I haven't uh, mentioned any of his films. It's Vittorio De Sica's The Children Are Watching Us. Mm. Yeah, this film is really good. I know Paul Hughes had a chance to see it after I really was kind of knocked out by it. And it um, it's, it's a really heartbreaking film. Um, it looks at the 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 sort of dissolving of a marriage in front of the eyes of a four-year-old son and you know the, the family the, the couple like the mother and father trying to go on a vacation and salvage things and it deals with a lot of things that weren't on you weren't seeing in film you you definitely weren't seeing on film in italy because culturally being catholic you know divorce was a bit of a no-no oh, not a bit of that's that's a bit of an understatement um and not just that, but as a as a society, you know, divorce wasn't really all that prevalent. And to have the man be vulnerable in this position, like the father is a little bit more vulnerable than the, than the mother in this one. Um, like it kind of does that, not but nowhere near the extreme that um, <laughs> Leave Her to Heaven does. But um, yeah, I'm, I may be making the, the mother sound worse than she is, but. Um, it, it just the, the way that the father in this film isn't full of machismo and it's something that, you know, felt very real. And, and it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a film that you're going to loaf up. Probably you're going to yeah. fucking loaf up and, but it's great. I mean, it's beautifully shot. You get some seaside kind of stuff, uh, you know, in a coastal town in Italy. Um, it feels very real. Some of the dialogue between like the, the housemaid and, and the, uh, the husband and, um, the lead, I can't remember the female lead in it, the mother, uh, Issa Pola. She didn't do very many films, and it's too bad, because she's really good in the film. All, all the performances are really good, but, uh, and even the little boy, like, kid acting is a slippery slope, as we all know. 
but the kid in it is Prico, um, Luciano D'Ambros, uh, D'Ambrosis. He he puts in a really good performance for a little boy, and uh, man, the fucking end for this one. Oh, so anyway, that's uh, that's my number fifteen. Nineteen forty-four is the children are watching us. Cool, cool. Uh, number sixteen. We're going to nineteen fifty-four. Uh, Mister Douglas Sirk with Magnificent Obsession. Nice. Um, you have uh, Sirk still shooting things very noir-like. He he loves to have these deep, heavy shadows. Even though his, you know, his movies were in color, uh, but they always had the, there was just these massive pools of, of like just almost black in the middle of the frame, and they just look absolutely outstanding. Um, it's got a really great setup. It's about um, Rock Hudson, who's kind of a, a a showboater, and you know he's he's running around. He winds up uh, basically blinding Wyman's character, uh, and then he reinserts himself back into her life. Uh, because he falls in love with her, and uh, he, he tries to uh, to help her out as as much as he can. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, I think that I like the uh, the Wyman Hudson uh, tension and the relationship here more than in All That Heaven Allows. I think it works a little bit better in here. Um, this is pure melodrama, but it's it's insanely well done. Um, especially when you get towards the back end and, and some of the turns that it takes, you're like, holy shit, am I watching a soap opera? But it really, it, it works, it works really well for what it is. And it's a, a gorgeous film. Um, and, um, I don't know what else I can say about it. I so. think his, sorry, I think his use of shadows is so effective too, because this was the guy that was taking melodrama and, you know, elevating it to an art form, but also, kind of pull, looking beyond the white picket fence at some of the kind of dark things that were happening in suburbia at the time. Well, that, yeah, that's the beauty of it is that, the, yeah. the subversive sort of elements that he had in there. Yeah. Absolutely. And Wyman's great. Is that the one with the boat, the openings with the boat? Yes. Yeah. Because I, I watched Magnificent Obsession and what's the one he did with, um, was it Robert Stack? No. Uh, Inherit the Wind? Inherit or the not Wind. Inherit the Wind. Was it Inherit the Wind? Might no. Inherit the Wind, no. With the sports car. Um, written on the yeah. Wind. Written on the Wind. I always mix up Magnificent Obsession and Written on the Wind because I saw them, I think, within a day of each other. Inherit the Wind, I think, was about the Scopes trial. but. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Written on the Wind, you're right. Written on the Wind. And it also, I think, isn't that where Hudson is like the – there's the brother and sister and he's like yeah. the friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yep. if people aren't checking out Cirque, they got to check out Cirque. He's Absolutely. fucking outstanding. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so, second appearance of the Donahue clan. <laughs> and uh, it is 1991. It is They Call Me Macho Woman. Nice. They did this one? Directed Isn't... by Patrick Donahue, starring John Donahue. Wow. Isn't this the one with the female trucker, the Mexican female trucker? No, she. It's a. The, let's put it like this the cover. The chick that's on the cover, like with like a, an axe or whatever, like looking all crazy. I think she's like a Latina. That's not the girl in the movie. Oh man! <laughs> yeah. <with> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's about a girl who's basically looking for a house out, uh, you know, in the country, and she gets captured by a group of just mongrels, and uh, they, you know, they turn her into like basically this crazy lady, and she escapes. And then uh, 
the movie is her getting her revenge on the group of guys. You know, it's like um, a ridiculous, like, uh, what's the, I spit in your grave almost, oh. um, except not as bleak as that one, but just way fun. And a girl running around the woods with almost like um, Arnie's, like, you know, he goes in the, in Ar- Arnie in the commando goes in like the tool shed that's pretty much what she does in this movie she goes to like a barn and finds every weapon she can find in the barn and straps them to her clothing and just starts killing people and it's a super fun time with uh patch or sean donahue running around in the woods looking like an idiot and it's awesome (laughs) i feel so embarrassed not to derail i feel so embarrassed that because i was looking at reading an article someone wrote about the vatican like anyway because someone had posted something on facebook and i I mean you said about short eyes i was like oh yeah marvin gay i feel so embarrassed right now that i said marvin gay and not curtis mayfield i I even pictured in my head i i I was picturing marvin gay yeah you know yeah i did it too (laughs) fuck oh well i gotta let it go (laughs) all right just go watch They Call Me Macho Woman. In yeah, movies. man. Uh, but yeah, uh, number two from the Donahue clan. Good stuff. I guess I'm up, right? Instead yeah, of, sure. Uh, spacing out here. Uh, <laughs> so next up, another black and white film. This filmmaker's already been mentioned. Um, it's maybe his most famous film. It was like such a big list of shame film for me. It's uh, Ozu's Tokyo Story. Um, nice. Yeah, really great stuff, man. Uh, Obvious statements are obvious. Um, I feel like the thing I admire most about his film, and even Kurosawa with some of his smaller films, is how profound they are, but seemingly simple on the surface, but how deeply profound they are in terms of universal truths about family, life, love, regret relationships things that you know affect all of us um and this is no different you know uh, i don't want to say what happens but it's about a, a, a mother and father who are elderly and they go to visit their their children who are very busy and uh, it, it's a it's a wonderful film with you know some really great performance i think your girl plays not a daughter but like a daughter-in-law okay of their late son in this one Huh. Um, I'm pretty sure because that smile is pretty enchanting in this. So, yeah, I mean, I finally saw it. I was so happy to knock it off my list. And uh, all the ink that's been spilled over this one in keystrokes are are well earned, certainly. Well, to your to your point about um, about uh, you know them being able to convey a lot, uh, it's it's really that kind of that kind of thing of paring down. Uh, something into the the least amount of uh, it's like doing a painting in the least amount of strokes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. Absolutely. I think they, they, there's a there's a, a distillation or a, just a purity through simplicity that it, too many other people get too caught up in in throwing more layers at it instead of exactly. less. Yeah, exactly. they really strip it down and distill it uh, quite well. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. Um, are we over to me now? Yeah, man. Alrighty, uh, number 17, 1963, we're getting back to Mr. Bergman with Winter Light, which... I've never seen this. It's a good one. It's a good one. 
uh, Smiles of a Summer Night was, you know, fairly light and and that sort of thing. Uh, this is the furthest point from that uh, as as it can possibly be. Uh, Bergman is not afraid of close-ups and he uses them extremely well. Um, and it really uh, it really sh- shows through in this one. Uh, this has one of the grimmest uh, churches and masses that I've ever seen in the history of cinema. Um, speaking of the uh, the, the close-ups, uh, he, he makes great use of, uh, of direct address, like the character looking straight at the camera and talking. Um, it's, uh, the, the, the priest in this is not the world's greatest grief counselor, which is basically what the film is about, is uh, this priest having a, a, a crisis of, uh, of conscience. It's a very ex- existentialist film. Did you see Calvary? Have I? No, not yet. Very interested for your opinion. Um, but uh, this is, uh, like I said, existentialism at its finest. But it's it's got very stripped down visuals, uh, and th- it's not like um, it's not a polished looking movie. Uh, not to say that it looks bad, but it doesn't look you know overly produced. Uh, it's and this this sort of stripped down visuals they match the stripped down emotional rawness of the characters in it. Um, there's a, 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 a passion of the Christ analogy in here, which is not very subtle at all, uh, but it is very well played. Um, and despite all of the the grimness and the 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 I guess kind of navel gazing and and that sort of thing, uh, it, it really manages to be a very hopeful movie uh, at the end. Um, it, there's a, a quote um, from one of the guys, and I don't even think it's from the main guy. It's not even from the the priest who's the the main character. It's from one of the guys who just kind of like hobbles around and, and takes care of things, turns on the heat for him, and all that sort of stuff. Because he's traveling between two churches to do two masses while he's having this uh, this crisis. Uh, and this guy says to him, "As long as there's one person in the church, there's hope for the future." And that's it's really not so much that it's about church or religion but about the hope for the future part of it because you you'll see if you when you watch the movie you'll see how it, the metaphors play out but um it was a really really good movie really really good uh and again it's not really like a it's not really like a uh it's a heavy bergman film but it's not like an overly like quote-unquote arty bergman film like something like uh a persona would be, even though I love, you know, and I love persona. Um, but it's not, it's not in that vein of Bergman, even though it's, you know, that's mind melting. Has a lot of the, uh, yeah, it has a lot of the same, uh, same elements in, uh, to it. So, but this was really, really good. And, uh, I believe there's a criterion disc of this. I don't know if it's on blue yet, but, um, definitely seek it out. It's absolutely worth seeing. Um, nice. there you go. Winter light. Awesome. Uh, okay, seventeen. We got uh, our boy Amir Shervan is here, <laughs> and we got Jim Mitchum again. <laughs> now this is going to be quick because I don't remember actually like a lot of what happens, but I remember when at the time when I watched it, I was with Tanner, our boy Tanner Banana. Nice. And we were watching this, and it was just. A riot of a good time, and this is Hollywood Cop, um, <laughs> which I actually dig more than Samurai Cop, which I guess a lot of people wouldn't, because um, Samurai Cop gets all the all the glitz and glamour. Yeah, Hollywood Cop sitting in the gutter, 
and uh, <laughs> it's kind of where it belongs, but I love it anyway. And um, there's guys that uh, are puking in this movie for no reason. Um, <laughs> there, there's a scene where a dude like he just he's running and then he he just throws up. Like, <laughs> I think it happened on set, and they just kind of like, well, we we got to use it because we don't have a lot of money, yeah. and just kept it. Um, but yeah, it's basically a detective is is uh, trying to get a kid back from from a group of kidnappers, and that's the basic story. But it's Amir Shervan, so you know you get crazy stunts and crazy dialogue and all kinds of insanity, and the stunts are really like. It's not as crazy as like like some of the Donahue stuff. Like they don't go nuts, nuts. Like or even with Amir with his uh, like um, what's the American Hunter. Um, but it's fun and it's you know ridiculous and it's it's Amir doing a ho- his Hollywood thing. Like it's 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 a good time. But I can't remember all the plot points, so that's all I got to say about Hollywood Cobb. Cool. Uh, next up for me is a very different film from Hollywood Cop, uh, and probably <laughs> God, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 man. Listen, you know, Variety is the spice of life. Because um, I'm going to be getting on a run of some stuff here pretty soon. <laughs> um, this was a film that was reviewed on the show, and I sadly didn't get to say a single fucking word about it because I had to jump ship on the episode, and I was really bummed. Um, Rupert Pupkin was on with Sammy and they talked about 1935's Mark Sanders directed film my first Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers jam top hat Ah. this film was a lot of fun Um, I don't like to think of myself as a musical guy I don't see a lot of musicals I'm not a big fan of them like most people in our community you know a fan of the paradise and Rocky Horror and you know certain ones uh, I can get behind but um, I've really taken a shine to obviously a lot of the Gene Kelly stuff, the MGM kind of really colorful, beautiful ones, but, um, <clears throat> I had never seen any Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers other than, you know, clips here and there. And this one's really good, man. Really high production value. It's a good looking film. And I think one of the things I love most about it is I think we all make the mistake sometimes. And I know you talked about this earlier, Todd, with, you know, being able to get into more silent film that older films are going to be fucking boring and dull, but they can be really charming and smart and funny. Absolutely. And this is a great example of that. It's, it's a good-looking film, great clothes, great, like I said, beautiful production, as films of the time were, some really, really wonderful numbers, like from a dance perspective. And that sounds maybe silly to say when you know we watch like you know awesome Amir Shervan films or yes. uh, Bruno Mattei and shit like that, but again... Variety is a spice of life. And if you love film, being able to see someone move like that, and like I said, the charming kind of make cute stuff that isn't the bullshit that passes for kind of romantic comedy nowadays. Like romantic comedy is such a dirty term to me. But when I see stuff like this, it's like I can watch it with my wife and we can have a good time and, you know, not worry about like people leaning at a 45 degree angle on the cover. And, you know, it's just ridiculous. So um, Top Hat, man, 1935, Roop. I didn't get a chance to speak on it, but. I love you, buddy. Thanks for picking it. Cool, cool. Yeah, I got to check that one out myself. I don't think I've ever seen any of the the uh, Astaire uh, Rogers films. They're good together, man. There's a reason they were so famous. Like they're really charming. Like the make cute stuff's really fantastic, and the back end is really well. Like I don't know where if they. I think they created this set. I think they recreated like the Venice, Venice, fuck, 
the uh, Venice canals, uh, much like they did ironically in Los Angeles. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really cool. Man. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Um, we're heading back to Japan. Um, I'm going to keep this one as short as I can because it's, I don't want to give too much away about it, but, uh, 1968 Hiroshi Matsuno, uh, directed the living skeleton. Um, I'll, I'll try I'll try and, 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 uh, it takes this film about three minutes to become insanely fascinating. You have, uh, implied sleaze, plus there's a lot of overt sleaze later on. Uh, there's a boat hijacking, a guy with half his face burnt, uh, a woman's <laughs> reflection and sunglasses, and a whole lot of death. In the opening three minutes? In the opening three minutes of this movie. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's got an odd progression of plot points, but it makes for an uneasy feeling which is kind of what it's going for a lot of surprises it's a it's a pretty wild ride um i love this thing it's this is one of the ones this is one of the films we were talking before about the criterion box sets uh this is on the horror came to shochiku uh box set and uh, it is really really ton of fun i got that for um, christmas yeah 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 man, man dig in because this is this is probably my favorite of the uh of the films in there. Nice. Uh, and I think it's, there was four of them in the X from outer space, go body snatcher from hell, this, and, um, Oh crud. Uh, the one about the insects basically killing everybody on the planet, uh, which is another wild one, but, uh, I like this one a little bit more. Very cool. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to give too much away about it. Cause you really kind of have to have to see it for yourself. It's, it's a wild ride, man. The living skeleton. Nice. Nice. Uh, okay, 18 is uh, another Vinegar Syndrome release. Um, DVD only, sadly. Um, I think it came out... Troma, I guess, acquired it at some point, but Vinegar Syndrome has a way better cover and everything else. But it's called Lust for Freedom. Uh, 1987. Kind of a women-in-prison movie. Um, basically, a cop is... Uh, she gets like caught up by some corrupt cops. They kind of fuck her over. And she goes to jail, and it's basically her fighting her way out of jail through inmates and uh, everything. And it's it's got your 80s, awesome 80s clothes, awesome 80s music. It's got everything you want in a like 80s women in prison film, which is kind of cool that it's an eight, late 80s women in prison movie. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, it's, it's not a big genre at that time, um, so it's pretty cool to see that. Um, but yeah, it's it's nothing really more than that, other than it's really fun, which seems to be the the theme of my list, and um, it's just another one that is it, it is what it is. It's it's a, it's the lust for freedom. She's trying to get out and make it back to to to, to life, and it's really really good time. Nice. Cool. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, me it's, too, man. It's really, it's got a, the Vinegar Syndrome cover's really good, man. It's, it's, it's kind of, I, I had never heard of it until they, because like I said, Troma had it, but I had never seen Troma's version of it. Um, and then uh, Vinegar Syndrome picked it up, and that cover kind of really sold me on it. And um, it's a really, really fun movie. Nice. Cool. Nice. Um, this next film was uh, one that kind of really came out of nowhere, and I don't know why I even picked it one night. Or maybe one of my kids did. It was like for a family movie night, and it's 
one of two relatively kid friendly films on my list. I guess Zazie would be kid friendly enough, but yeah. But um, this is a proper kids film, and uh, it's 1971's Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Nice man. That is- What's that? That is a great movie. Oh, it's so amazing. And I watched it, and it really, and this sounds kind of trite and kind of cliche, but like, you know, Disney sprinkled that magic on me, and I was just mesmerized. And my wife came in about halfway through, and there's still shit in this film. Like, someone's, I Googled it, I couldn't find anything. Someone's got to tell me. And me and Sammy talked about it in the air, and no one was able to tell us. There's an amazing sequence towards the back end of the film when there's some magic done. And like there's this army of like um, uh, suits of armor and like um, soldier and warrior costumes that come to life. And I don't know how they did it um, because I tried to figure out what it was and it was too early for green screen. But anyway, this is um, a mixture of live action and animation. Um, it's, you know, it takes place in Britain during the war and it's really a lot of fun. It's a great film to show kids. Um the cast is all outstanding in it. Angela Lansbury is a lot of fun, you know, kind of pokes at the whole mythology of witchery and it's, it's really good. And it's a beautiful film. And again, it's at a time when, um, you know, early sixties to early seventies films looked great. The Disney stuff looked great. And, you know, I have to say having watched a rewatch, a lot of Disney stuff with my kids now, cause I had no real interest in I'm not one of those people. And, you know, some of us are teach their own, but some people watch Disney films a lot, even without kids. I want to watch all the sleaze and junk that I can when my kids aren't around. So having revisited all this Disney stuff, there's a reason Disney is the brand they are, man. Like their stuff is so timeless and so beautiful and so well done. Like I, I got to give it up to them. This is one that a lot of people don't think of when they think of great films in their catalog, but it's really good. Cool. Yeah, I definitely, I watched that a ton growing up and uh, still love it to this day. It's a yes. great film. Really cool, man. Cool, cool. Um, my number 19. From the year 1969, Mr. Haskell Wexler's Medium Cool. Oh, so good. Oh, yeah, buddy. Uh, uh, it's not a documentary strictly, and it's very incongruous like Malikian kind of feeling yeah uh but it's really intriguing from start to finish um it basically follows uh, these reporters and the camera guy and then they go to the uh the democratic national convention i think i think so yeah in uh, in uh where was it chicago i believe so yeah um and it's basically they they were actually filming the stuff that was going on while they were also filming the story of the cameraman and what he's going through. Um, so it kind of interweaves the two and it, it's got a really interesting structure. It's kind of um, like very point illustration of point, point counterpoint uh, keeps it moving along. He's really well, well paced. Um, I thought that this was really a um, marvelous uh, like um, encapsulation of the mood of the time uh, as well as being a very strong, um, it's a like a strong statement on on the responsibility of the media itself. Uh, it it sags just a little bit in the middle bit, uh, but um, other than that, I mean, there's there's very little to, to really pick on in this movie. It's not. It's a little bit 
avant-garde in, in, in certain areas. Yeah, but that's fair. It's, not, it's certainly not enough to, to put off like the more casual film goers, I don't think. I mean, it's very much of its time. Um, the, the footage they have at the actual like protests and stuff is – and like – I don't want to say riots, but you know, just um, it was a, a pretty like dicey, like ooh man. You at one point you can hear the cameraman um, yeah. actually say like like hey, hey, hey like we gotta go or we're gonna like fucking that. get killed or he did something like yeah. that. Yeah, it was crazy. Like it, to see that real footage mixed into the into the movie is really cool. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Um, I, I don't quite know. I don't want to give anything away. I'm not quite sure, and I've discussed this with the, with Will, why they chose to end the story uh, the way that they did. But outside of that, I absolutely love the the very last, the final shot of this movie. It's it just really sums it all up, and you know, turns it around and kicks you in the ass. It's a great great movie, uh, which you know really should be seen if you haven't seen it. So. And again, it's a film like you said. It, I think it captures that era. It really does perfectly, but it's also so timely now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. And how much like Robert Forrester is pretty hunky in that. He looks like like a. It's weird how much he looks like Charles Bronson to me in that. Yeah, yeah. He actually does. He looks way young. He like too young. Yeah, and plus, totally. I think you, you get to see his uh, his dingle there for a little bit. Did you? I don't remember that somehow. I'm pretty sure you do. Because he's running around naked with the the one uh, chick at the in the in his room there. Oh yeah, yeah, like, that's th- right. Towards the, towards the front of the of the movie. Yeah, right, right. Um, and I'm pretty sure you get to see the uh, little Robert, little. Nice. Forest. You get to see the, the yeah inside the forest. Yeah. <laughs> Find the forest. Robert, that tree. Yeah. That Robert Dingle. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Okay, nineteen. Um, I'm pretty sure Will watched this. Um, but my number nineteen is White of the Eye. Yeah, I did. We okay. covered it on the show. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I remember you said uh, basically starts off stronger than it ends and big time. Right? Yeah, yeah. The, the beginning is amazing with some amazing kills. Um, oh wow! Yeah, very Jalo esque. Um, but I really dug it. Um, all the way through, it's got a uh, David Keith uh, playing a. You know, I I like when movies take, it, be it location or professions or, or whatever, and kind of you know have weird ones and like this. Yeah. Is, yeah. And this has both where it's set in like a weird part of the desert, yeah. but then also has David Keith as like a a like stereo repairman. Pretty much, or like an again like audio like uh, yeah. sets up like people's speaker systems for them. Yeah, and you yeah. know that's just like I like when movies do weird things like that. And uh, basically, he gets um, he's a suspect in a series of murders that are going on, and um, he's trying to prove that he's innocent. And uh, his, his wife, who is uh, what's her name, um, Kathy something. Oh man, I can't remember. Um, more Moriarty, Kathy Moriarty. I'll look it up while you're talking. I think it is, and you know she's um, Kathy she's, Moriarty. Yeah, yeah. She she's, she's Canadian, has I her think. own she has her own thing she's trying to figure out uh, with, with, involving David, oh. and it has a uh, a great finale in a in a quarry with dynamite. <laughs> 
Isn't there and, pelts? Isn't isn't David Keith wearing pelts? Yeah, yeah. He 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 yeah. does this awesome paint on his face with like not even paint. It's blood that he puts on his face. He's got this crazy look. It, it's it's a very like stylized movie. Um, but like you said, heavier in the front end than the back. But um, I still dug it fine all the way through. I really like David Keith. I, I don't know what it is about him, but I, I like really, him too. He's great. I really like that dude. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a weird slasher-ish, giallo-esque in a way American film, like in the eighties. Like it's, it, I thought, I thought it's it was, unique. It's very yeah, unique. It's, it's very interesting and, and different. Um, so that's why I kind of made my list. I really just had a good time with it, and it's kind of strange. But nice. Yeah. Nineteen um, is was definitely one of the bigger films on my list of shame. Like major, major, major. Uh, and I saw it probably around like October, maybe no, in October. That's all horror. Probably November. And I'm glad that I finally could knock it off my list and uh, could talk about it. Uh, and I don't know what I can really add to the conversation, but it's 1961's Robert Ross and film The Hustler. Um, yeah, somehow this just, you know, I hadn't seen it. And, uh, I think I'm getting a bit punchy here, so I'm not gonna be able to articulate as much as I could have having seen it, you know, fresh at the time. But I, I really dig a lot of the stuff that the film goes for. I think it's darker than a lot of films were at the time. Um, I think that as great as Newman and Gleason is, or are, um, Laurie, Piper Laurie and George C. Scott put in, dynamite performances to get a bit lost in the shuffle. I think that's a shame because they're both really good in the film and as is everyone. So yeah, I can't add a whole lot other than to say the hustler was everything that, uh, it was advertised to be. I just bought that Blu-ray. It was six ninety nine. It's a good looking Blu-ray, man. Really good. You got, can't beat it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for those who, uh, who are not used to seeing Gleason in a serious role, it's a shame he didn't do more. Yeah, absolutely it is. He was a gifted, gifted man. Sheriff Buford T. Justice. Um, <laughs> so, number 20, uh, 1931, Mr. William Wellman, and it is The Public Enemy with Mr. James Cagney. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, I know what you were thinking. Uh, the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's a fantastic crime film uh, with some really excellent camera work, especially for the time, including uh, there's the one shot that really stood out to me is there's a um, the shot where the camera's pulling Cagney along uh, as he's walking in the rain. And it's just absolutely phenomenal to see. Um, I love I love old I love movies at that time watching the, when they have the actual camera be moving because um, it's just is amazing to me the way that it, they did it. It just it looks different than uh, than at any other time, and it, it always impresses me because of the the difficulties the difficulties that they had to uh, overcome, uh, especially with the cumbersomeness of the uh, the equipment. Um, the Cagney character is, is pretty much the kind of guy who's just born bad, and that's the end of it. Um, it has uh, Jean Harlow in it uh, in the film, who personally she never did much for me. Uh, but she does a really nice job here. Um, there is some nice uh, pre-code uh, sleaze with a, a, a sloshed-up uh, Jimmy Cagney getting hit on by a cougar. Um, not not the four-legged kind, um, <laughs> the other kind. Um, but it, it was it was really a lot of fun and a really good uh, really good movie. If you like uh, crime movies and especially at that time, 
uh, definitely check out uh, The Public Enemy. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going there. <laughs> 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 yeah. All right, it's curtains for Rocco. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, all right, number 20. If I were to say, hey, drives on my list, and then you would say, you've seen that a hundred times. I'd be like, not the one from 97. This is a fun film, man. Yeah. A lot this of is uh, Mark Dacascos and uh, <laughs> a guy who I really like, uh, Kadeem Hardison. Uh, I liked him whenever I saw him and stuff. Wayne Wayne, man. Yeah, I haven't seen him in a long time. Um, but yeah, Drive... Oh, the, I mean, the only reason this is like on my list is the the the, the stunt work and the fights by like the Cascos, everybody involved, like all the guys who are fighting all the stuntmen. It, it's just it's on another level. It's one of those movies like it's just like one of those gems where you see it and you see these fights. And you're like Jesus, like I should have seen this years ago. Like the fights are insane. They're fast. They're big. The stunts are crazy. It, it's a really fun movie. Um, one of the best American action films. Period. Seriously, it, it, it's awesome, and it's got a little bit of sci-fi element to it, and um, it's yeah, it's it's just a really great action movie that, man, I didn't even know existed until this year, and it was awesome. <laughs> I was blown away by it. It was so much fun. I know. But yeah, uh, 1997's Drive. I know we covered it. I don't even think I was on that episode years ago. I think with Miles and Roop and. Sammy, maybe. Um, I'd have to go hunt it down. Yeah, over the years you miss certain things, and I, I guess I miss that one. Yeah, no, it's it's fun, man. It's it's definitely a lot of fun, and it's a shame. It's sad to see it and think the Costco's never became what he should have been. Oh man, you know, because he's so good, man. And then of course, only the strong is is a great. Oh, only Mark the strong. Awesome. jam. So good. Um, Brian Freeman's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure, man. I like him in a lot of stuff, actually. He's um, good. I wish he was. Kind of sucks that most people, if they know his face, they know Iron him from Chef. Iron Chef, which is like really like, how does that even happen? I know, I know. <laughs> it's true. One of the best, like, guys, you know, like you know, martial artists and stuff, like in the last, like, you know, in in America, like you know, years, and people know him from Iron Chef. It's insane. <laughs> no, I know. But uh, what are you gonna do? Whatever. At least, you know, we'll always have a soft spot for the Dacascos. Yeah. Um, I really want to cover uh, Only the Strong because it has one of my favorite cinematic villains. Oh. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's amazing. When you, he is so when you amazing. you first see him come up on the basketball courts, oh, so good. He's like a cross between Razor Ramon and Shonuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. man. He's not quite as good as that, but it, it's, you know... Pretty apt. That's that show Ramon. Yeah, man. That man. <laughs> uh, next up is a film that I kept avoiding because I thought I'd already seen it. And in uh, true to form to this genre's fashion, the title confused me because I thought I had already seen The Killer Reserved Nine Seats. Um, nice. And this, of course, that I didn't see, and I'm glad I did finally see, is now one of my favorite Jallos is the Lady in Red, or the Red Queen, kills seven times. Mm. Directed by Emilio Moralia, who was a pretty good little filmmaker, didn't do a lot, only made five or six films, including a couple early uh, Eurocrime films, like late 60s Eurocrime films with uh, with Henry Silva. And uh, this one's really fun, man. It's really bonkers. 
Um, it's got it's got a really great cast: Barbara Boucher and Sybil Danning as sisters. Um, a lot of kind of uh, a lot of you know a lot of usual fare, you know, some uh, red herrings and stuff, and it's kind of got a supernatural element, and it, it's you know it's a lot of fun. If you haven't seen it, check it out. The box set that it comes with it comes with a really fun doll of the Red Queen. Um, it's got it's really well shot, like alongside not as good as the Fifth Chord. I think Storero shot that, but it's one of the. There's a sequence in like a corridor near the back end. It's unbelievably shot. So, yeah, the red the, the red queen kills seven times. Uh, you got to check it out. It's a lot of fun. Um, I think with that, let's get a quick break, very quick, and uh, come back and finish up the show, the big show, the massive show. So, big time, big time, man. So we're gonna be <laughs> right back. Boy. And we are back. Time to round out the show. Uh, talk about our 21 to 30s, our bronze, as it were, with the gold, silver, and bronze of our top 30 of the year. Uh, so, of course, we're going to kick it over to Totter, and he's going to give us his, uh, his Deion Sanders, his number 21. Yeah. Uh, we are staying in the year 1931 uh, with. Ruben Mamoulian's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Nice. Um, it's visually magnificent. It's very thoughtful in the camera work. It makes absolutely great use of uh, mirrors and POV shots. Uh, jumping all over the place. It's got some sleazy stuff with the with hookers, uh, including a little bit of side boob. I mean, obviously being pre-code again. Uh, tons of sexual tension in this thing. Um, Frederick March's... Uh, uh, Mr. Hyde is uh, brilliant, uh, the way that he brings it to life. Uh, and he does a great job bringing both of the sides of the character to life as well. Uh, I love the makeup in this. It's probably my favorite of the Mr. Hyde uh, makeups that I've ever seen, uh, outside of maybe the uh, Abbott and Costello meet uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, 
it, if all you've ever seen are stills of the makeup, they really don't do justice to uh, the effects or the film overall. I think I don't remember if he won for best actor in this or if he if, if it won best picture for that year. I don't remember which one, uh, if not both, but uh, it was well deserved. Uh, really, really great telling of the of the story, and you know, just amazingly, amazingly done on, just on a technical level. Um, so, this is uh, hands down my favorite uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde uh, adaptation as of right now. So, definitely check it out if you haven't. It is well worth it. Well, well worth it. I have not seen that. It's got to see that, man. Awesome. Oh yeah, it's really good, man. Really good. It's one of those things, like, I love the Jekyll and Hyde story, and, you know, you see different versions of it. Some are good, some are bad. So, yeah, I really got to see that one. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it's amazing. I mean, he really does a, a – a, March really does a great job. Frederick March really does a great job of, you know, making a very distinct, you know, portrayal of both sides of the, the character. Um, awesome. And the, the, the makeup really helps because he is fugly. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do they still use that word "fugly"? I think so. I'm so. using it. So, <laughs> all right, that's all I got on that one. But yeah, do check it out. Yeah, and let me know what you think, man. I look forward to that. Oh man, definitely. Uh, number twenty-one, we got some Miles O'Keefe, and uh, we got Cartel. Oh, I love this one. Man, it <laughs> it's violent. Violent is as as it could be. It's uh, you know basically a a guy, a pilot, um, is smuggling drugs into the U.S., but he doesn't know he is. And the guy that's smuggling the drugs, uh, they, they basically, basically both go to jail, and uh, the bad guy kills some people from behind bars. So when uh, Miles gets out, he has to, uh, you know, do the deed, you know, get some revenge. And uh, it's a violent... Like super, like I, I I couldn't believe when I was watching it, like how bloody it is, and the stunts again um, are awesome. That's that's like one of these things. Like a lot of my movies have are like on here just because of the stunts. Like you see a lot of these movies, and like there's a there's a time much like eighties Hong Kong, or like I feel like early nineties America, low budget cinema action cinema man like these guys they didn't care and they just went for it and these movies are all the better for it it's insane um yeah if you like if you like violent stuff and and over the top action uh cartel is a is a really fun one directed by a guy named john stewart who if you look has been in a lot of um he's been on a lot of stuff that like people would know but he also directed uh, action usa which is another crazy action movie. Um, so yeah, Cartel, good stuff. And how high is Don Stroud in that film? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know who's higher, him or Wings in um, in a Road to Revenge. Yeah, they could have went on a, like a, a nine-day bender. Oh, man. It's Insane. amazing. <laughs> all, it's these amazing. Guys had to, all these guys had to hang out at this time, I would think. Oh, <laughs> and, man. It, it was probably some crazy stories. Yeah, it's intense. <laughs> um, next up was one that um, was kind of list of shame for me, and, and well, it wasn't a lot of ways. It's made by one of my favorite directors, and like a top 
three to five director for me. And it was one of his early works that I just, I'd never seen for some reason. And our good friend Tanner Bananer um, was like, man, you got to see it. It's so good. I'm like, I know, I know. I got to see it. I got to see it. So finally he pushed me to see Dario Argento's Four Flies on Grey Velvet. Oh, yeah. Ooh, very nice. <clears throat> yeah, this one's awesome. It's um, it's one of like um, one of Dario's early kind of clean giallos. And what I mean by that is, you know, his early stuff like Bird and this, they feel very clean to me and, and tight. Mm-hmm. His films, as they get older, it's almost like a guitarist who's very technically proficient. He gets into like his Jimi Hendrix phase later on in his career. Um, this one's beautifully shot. Uh, I think it's got Eno Morricone score, if memory serves. And, yeah, I mean, it's really great. If you've seen a giallo that Mimsy Farmer did that Todd's a fan of, you can kind, oh, of, yeah. you can kind of forecast uh, the weather for this one. Uh, but it's got Bud Spencer in it, man. Um, it's got some a few great shots. Like there's the shot of the guy in the mask with the binoculars, which if you've seen, it's really great. Luigi Cozzi shows up, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a very tight. It's I think it's a classic of the genre. So, um, and it's yeah. got that, that it's got that Italian uh, faux science going on in it. Oh man, does it ever! <laughs> I love that shit. Yeah, yeah, they just tie it all up with some some hot Italian psycho babble. <laughs> so it's it's great. No, it's it's a really good man. Clean, good looking film. Great score. I mean, you you know, it's it's fantastic. Cool, cool. Uh, my twenty two is from Britain. Uh, Lindsay Anderson, nineteen sixty eight. The movie is called If. Oh, I got to see this. I've never seen uh, it. It is. It's really, really good. Uh, it's a bit like um, it's a bit like Over the Edge uh, in a British boys' school meets The oh, nice. Wall, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Uh, it's you know a literal youth and rebellion uh, against an overbearing system. It's and it's also a, an adolescent male fantasy uh, about you know violent individuality. Um, I mean, that's that pretty much sums it all up. It's about these kids that are getting, you know, picked on and beat on at this school and blah 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 blah. And then eventually they wind up revolting uh, in in the end, which I believe they tell you all of this in the trailer, so it's no big surprise. Um, McDowell uh, is great in this, uh, but this was also at a time when he usually was doing great work. Uh, so I mean, if you like uh, Malcolm McDowell, man, you'll like him in this. He's very very young. Uh, and he even he even enters. I think he, uh, if I remember correctly, he enters the movie uh, dressed like uh, the Shadow, um, you know, with the oh, wow. makeup and everything else, because he'd been growing a mustache, uh, which is you know just funny to look at. But uh, but yeah, definitely recommended. Definitely, um, well worth seeing. And if there you go. Cool, cool. Uh, okay, number twenty-two. Amir Shravan is back. um i was hoping this one would be better um but it's still good i was hoping it was going to be like amazing though and this is killing american style oh Um, yeah it it is really good i mean it's it's out there it's got you know it's got the zadar it's got your jim brown um the main guy harold harold diamond yeah yeah (laughs) he's amazing 
Um, but basically, it's a it's a group of um, criminals who uh, get caught by Jim Brown and are going to jail. And uh, they have a buddy that springs them out, basically. And as they're running from the cops, they uh, come across Mr. Harold Diamond's um, house and basically try to hold up in there. And he ain't having it. And, uh, you know, he basically has to fight off these criminals. And you know it's it's Amir Shirvan, so it's it's not it's not as uh, stunt heavy as I was hoping. Like as you know the the action's not as crazy as I thought it was going to be, but as far as just ridiculous and the the plot is crazy. Like the the reason the guys go to jail is they rob a like I think it's an ice cream truck, uh, not ice cream truck factory, but there's ice cream trucks involved, and um, it's just it's just you know th- that weird Amir Shirvan style, like he. I don't think he knew much of what was going on in his movies. He would just shoot things, <laughs> but it was all the better for it. Like that's just that's his way of doing things, and it worked. Like his movies are, you can see the passion in them at least, like some sort of passion. I don't know exactly where it lies, but it was it's it. They have a a feel, and it's it's a really it's a it's a fun movie. Um, it's of his holy trinity, I guess you could call it, um, or even well, I'd say quadrilogy whatever you want to call it but i would put this you know it's it's kind of towards the bottom but still really good um chervon craziness you did say harold diamond not dustin diamond right yeah harold diamond (laughs) (laughs) dustin diamond be stabbing fools man big time (laughs) that screech yeah kelly have you seen train to kill oh yes that's harold diamond is it locks in the amazing villain in that film no way. Yeah, ma'am. Holy shit. Yeah, that's why I he's love the diamond. Of, he's in a lot of stuff. He's in a, a lot of... Uh, I know he's in, like, a lot of the... Um, uh, Sedaris. Stuff, yeah. yeah. He did a couple Sedaris films, too. Wow. I gotta rewatch Train to Kill now. He's amazing as locks in. Man. There's so much good stuff. Good lord. That film's amazing. It's got Frank Zangarino, Glenn Eaton from Last Dragon, Marshall Teague, Robert Sedaris, a man named Walter Magic, Harold Diamond... <laughs> Ron O'Neill, Chuck Connors, Henry Silva, Kane Hodder. And that is amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the page right now. And it's magic spelled M-A-J-Y-K. Yep. <laughs> it's amazing. So good. Mm-hmm. Oh, I gotta re- I gotta rewatch it now. Um and fucking Chuck Connors wears his uh his signature LA Dodgers cap in it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um Fuck, I'm getting slurpy on the air, man. Um, next up is a film that I gotta say, oh man, did I cover? Did I do it this year? I don't know if I saw it this year or if it was last year. I can't remember now. Probably this year. Anyway, this specific film that I'm referring to though was last year, uh, and this director's late cycle work is a lot of fucking fun. It's cheap as anything. It's ridiculous. Um, it's absurd. And it's at times a little bit inept, but it's so much fun. And I'm talking about Humphrey Hubert. What's that? Humphrey Hubert, you say? Well, 
I sounds like I'm reading a fucking teleprompter really bad right now. <laughs> Humphrey, I, I, was, I was wondering if you were talking to us. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, I'm getting tired. Um, Humphrey Hubert was the name that <laughs> the one. Who's that? Umberto uh, Lenzi. Umberto <laughs> Lenzi. Uh, and of course, the film that I'm talking about is La Casa Three, aka Ghost House. Oh yeah. This is getting a Blu-ray release this year. I know. It's we live in good times. We live in good oh. times. Uh, man, what can I say about this film? You got to see it to believe it. It's so good. It's so much fun. It's so ridiculous and low budget. And I'd seen maybe three or four late late cycle Lindsay films in the past uh, year, <laughs> Ooh, year and a half, and they're so amazing. Like. Um, he did uh, this one. He did, um, oh, fuck, Jalo a Disco, which is a lot of fun. Um, Murder Rock. And then what was the other one he did? Fuck. Was it uh, Primal Rage or... Man. I can't remember the name of it now. I don't know. I think he did Jalo a Disco. I don't think he did Primal Rage. Maybe it's not Primal Rage. It's it's an Italian one where and you did Iron Master where you get to see Eastman in like the pelt. Um, oh yeah, which is amazing. Uh, oh, Nightmare Beach as Harry Kirkpatrick. Cop Target. Nightmare Beach is great. Mm-hmm. Cop Target, which is fun. Um, fuck Have you man. You looked at some of Lindsay's other names. Yeah. It's Humphrey Hubert. Hubert Humphrey, uh, Hank, oh. Miles, Hank Milestone, Humphrey <laughs> Humphrey Milestone, Humphrey Milestone, <laughs> and yeah. Bert Lindsay. I always liked um, oh what's his name uh, that Matei worked under. Fuck, was it Larry Ludman? Did he work under Larry Ludman? Or oh, Vincent Don? Vincent, that's who it is. It's he's Vincent Don, and I think Sergio yeah. Martino went by Larry Ludman. God, Vincent <laughs> Don, yeah. <laughs> Um, man, is it, is it Primal Rage? Is that the Italian one I'm thinking of? I don't know. 88. Yeah, it is Primal Rage. Oh, it was Vittorio Rambaldi that directed it. Fuck, I mm. always thought it was Lindsay. I was strengthening my case inadvertently. Anyway, f- late cycle Lindsay is cheap and a little bit inept, but it's a lot of fun. And Ghost House is a lot of fun. And it's going to be on blue this year. So, yeah. And the, some of the stuff with, like, the doll and the girl is actually, like, a little bit creepy with the music, even though they milk that fucking cow hard. <laughs> but, uh, you know, doing what they do. Cool, cool. Uh, number 23, 1950, going to France so I can mutilate this guy's name for a second year in a row. Uh, Jean Coteau's Orpheus. Oh, nice. Um, it's uh, one of those movies. If you liked his Beauty and the Beast, there's no reason that you wouldn't like this. And it's even this one's even a little bit more uh, surreal and hypnotic, and equally as beautiful. Um, Maria Casares, I think I'm, I'm might be pronouncing that right. Uh, as Death is pretty sexy, and for me, it's interesting how Death is portrayed uh, as being kind of capricious and bureaucratic. Uh, it's almost like a, a, a Gilliam-esque in a way, so I, I would not doubt for one second that uh, that he got some of his uh, quirks from this movie. Um, it's very art-focused and about film, like 
film itself kind of in the same way that the the other like the new wave guys were uh because this is using like trick photography and like we were talking about with uh, Zazie um uh, earlier yeah uh it doesn't quite hold together as well as Beauty and the Beast does um but it does have uh, Jean-Pierre Melville in a tiny little blink and you'll miss it kind of cameo uh so that's an extra point for me um uh, but yeah definitely check it out Orpheus um I mean yeah it, it, don't sleep on Coteau. He's uh, he's a um, visual artist, and rightfully uh, rightfully so. I need to see some of his films. Have you seen any of his films or no? No. Oh, yeah, no. I highly recommend his work. I think you'll dig it. That's good. Thanks, man. All right. Oh yeah. Twenty three is directed by Vic Armstrong, who, if you don't know the name. Directed the Vic Nicholas Armstrong, you say? Yeah, Nicholas Cage starring Left Behind. Um, this is Army of One with Dolph Lundgren. Oh, nice. And uh, also known as Joshua Tree. Um, yeah, it's got Lamborghinis racing down uh, the mountainside. It's got one of the squibbiest, bloodiest shootouts I've ever seen in a movie uh, in the midway point. Um, and Lundgren is. Like a lot of the movies on my list is a guy who gets uh, framed by some corrupt cops and uh, he's basically trying to get back to them. And while he's doing that, uh, accidentally kidnaps a uh, uh, female cop who helps him basically get to his uh, end game. And it's fun action with cool. Like, it's it's weird. It's it's 93, but it feels kind of 80, late 80s because it's got like you know the the crazy Lambos and you know the you know it's it, the the styles of the clothes. It's very eighties ish, but um, it's another Lundgren winner, man. I love I love Dolph. I think I like Dolph more than Stallone, actually. Now that I'm thinking. Oh, seriously? Yeah. As I look through his movies, he his movies are way like he has way more fun movies, man. The, I mean, the like Red Scorpion is strong in this one. Dude, good stuff. I'll take I'll take the grand the Lund grand. Uh, but yeah, that's Army of One, Joshua Tree. Cool. Next up is maybe the most obscure film on my list. It's hard to find anything on this film, and it's a real shame. It's called Execution in Autumn. Uh, 19, it's a Taiwanese film, 1972. Period piece directed by Sing Lee, who um, was very good friends with King Hu. Um, he's a Chinese director. I should say he worked. This is a Taiwanese film. Uh, he was yeah, good friends with King Q, who is, you know, revered as, you know, one of the master filmmakers from sort of the early days of, um, China's film industry really kicking into sort of international came. Um, yeah. And it's really kind of a simple setup. It's about a thief who's going to be executed in the autumn. He's very unapologetic for what he's done. And it's just about the year that kind of leads up to his potential execution. And he's the only son for three generations in succession. So his grandmother, who's raised him, is desperately trying to do anything she can to get him out of the prison. Um, you know, he meets a girl. And it's it's just it kind of a really beautiful... It almost feels like, like Cirque doing period Chinese drama. 
Ooh. It's really cool. If I have it still, I'll, I'll, I'll get it to you guys. It's uh, I really dig it, man. It's really good little film. And like I said, I just I don't know anyone else that's seen it. And as a note to you, Kelly, um, yeah. Wu Tang, I think it's RZA, has a track that, that was unreleased previously that they, that was called named after this film, Execution in Autumn. Oh, really? Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah, so very, very cool. And I must have it uh, at work. I'll have to check. But yeah, hit me up if you guys uh, want it and I have it. I'm happy to give it to you. It's, it's a good film. Like I said, you know, simple in some ways, but great performances. You know, unknowns uh, because it's primarily tied time with these casts. So very cool. 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 Thanks. Yeah, no worries. Uh, number 24, 2007 uh, from Craig Gillespie. This is Lars and the Real Girl. Oh, man, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I thought so. Um, it's uh, sort of a geek love kind of movie, but the uh, the comedic bits and uh, Baby Goose's sincerity kind of pull you into it. Um, I thought that the people in this town were awfully understanding of this particular situation uh, of the plot. Um but outside of that, I mean, there's really not a lot that you can fault about. It's a, it's a you know a, a really nice story about loneliness and fear of intimacy, and it's you know really earnestly uh, told. Um, that scene at the at the at the party where Gosling is dancing, you know, I got chills. Um, so, oh, for sure. Uh, it's really yeah, it's really just a, a you know heartfelt, uh, nice little uh, movie about a guy in love with uh, or having a relationship with, I should say. Uh, a real doll. So, um, yeah. You, you should. Have you seen? Um, I want to say. What year was that? Two thousand seven. Yes, sir. Have you ever seen Corrieta's Air Doll? Uh, da, 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 no. That's about no. A, about a sex doll come to life, and it's uh, it's very cool. And it's it's nowhere near as sleazy as you think because it's Corrieta. But it's a really good. It was actually the first film that Sammy and I ever saw together in the same room. <laughs> we saw it at TIFF. Cool, so cool. It's a good one. And I know who I like in Lars the Real Girl is the I can't think of his name. He's a guy that plays Lars's brother. There's a lot of American indie films. Oh Christ! I think he was uh, even in all the Real Girls, the David Gordon Green film. All I remember, I I remember Emily Mortimer because I'm in love with Emily Mortimer. Um. I'll tell you his name in a second. Let me see. Uh, Paul Schneider? I was going to say Paul Rudd, but I was like, no, it's not Paul Rudd. Yeah, Paul Schneider. That's right. There you go. It does a lot of work with David Gordon Green. He, he's a good, uh, good kind of character actor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And that was on that one. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, this is uh, directed by uh, Filthy Phil Phillips. Um, and Filthy is spelled with P H I. Oh and, boy! Yeah, and it stars Stan Dorain, who did one movie, and Filthy Phil, the director, only did one movie, and it's this movie, and it's called City Dragon, and it's about a uh, a guy who half of his dialogue uh, is is rapped as he speaks. To people. <laughs> um, what year is this? Ninety five. Oh man. And, <laughs> He raps half of the time he's talking, and um, he's just fighting the gangs in town. He wears sweatpants throughout the whole movie, and 
a lot of the fights take place in parking lots. <laughs> so, um, and it's basically just a showcase for him and Filthy Phil, uh, because that's all they both ever did. But it is ridiculous in every way. I guess you could say it's kind of a vanity project. It's the only thing they ever did, so um, it makes for a pretty entertaining movie. But it's basically just the city dragon himself uh, going out and taking out the trash. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Filthy Phil. Yeah, Filthy Phil Phillips. (laughs) Ridiculous. (laughs) I didn't know that was his name. I didn't know that was his name until I looked it up right now. I was like, what the hell? But that's it. There that's you go. special. Yeah, City Dragon. That's for Ooh, you. That go. means it's time for this City Dragon to wake up. <laughs> Good lord. Head in the head in the uh, cereal bowl there. I did, man. For real. Okay, next up is um, let me see. No, it's not the last classy film on my list, but. One of the last class. It's like the second last class from the list. Uh, it's already been talked about, so I won't talk about it too much. It was higher up Todd's list. It's um, uh, Umberto D. Nice. Yeah, really great film, man. Simple, you know, simple story done quite well. Um, it really, you know, as people get older and just this this bizarre thing happens where these people that have been wonderful contributing members of society, pillars of communities become kind of marginalized and forgotten about and they kind of their respect and everything kind of gets stripped away from them and it's it's heartbreaking and you kind of see that in this film so mm-hmm. um yeah it's it's a great film uh done you know not in real wartime but you know wartime as far as the film i think it's just at the tail end of the war isn't it or, or is it pre-war I do just believe, pre- no it's, it's post, post yeah so really good stuff man yeah, and actually, uh, speaking of that that theme, it would probably make a good uh, double bill with uh, "Make Way for Tomorrow." Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, cool, cool. Um, number twenty five is from nineteen eighty two, directed by Martin Rosen. It is the, I believe, only piece of animation on my list, and it is the Plague Dogs. Oh, nice. Um. The animation's really nice in this. Uh, if you've ever seen anything like, you know, Watership Down, uh, this is the same. Uh, but uh, Rosen understands that, you know, it's a movie as well, so it's, he's not really over-reliant on stylized visuals like a lot of animation movies tend to be. Or I should say animated movies tend to be. Um, the uh, the voice acting from John Hurt and Christopher Benjamin is rock solid. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you're watching... There's an innocent sort of fatalism to the movie um and you keep hoping you know right up to the very end that uh, that these two guys are gonna are gonna pull through and uh, and get what they want to what they want out of life it's it's very powerful uh and especially if you're an animal lover um i, I really can't i don't want to say too much more about that it's about two dogs that escape from a, a research lab uh and you know obviously they're anthropomorphized because you know they're voiced by people in a cartoon um but outside of that it's really just uh it's them kind of it's it's them kind of trying to get away and trying to trying to find a, a better life for themselves uh but it's uh yeah really really good and um it's really uh yeah you gotta see it you gotta see it. you'll you'll understand when you get to the end of it but uh um yeah, there you go. That's all I got. That's all I can say about the plague dog. 
my number 25 is by a director who is, I'd say, mostly known for his horror movies. Um, but Alfred Hitchcock made my list with Foreign Correspondent. Very nice. Nice. I've never seen this. I love that one. Yeah. I, I love it. I mean, the story's cool. You know, it's um, basically about a reporter who is uh, kind of sick of the story that he's that he's getting. And he um, he's trying to basically figure out a – there's like a secret treaty that he's trying to um, expose or whatever. And uh, things don't go exactly how he wants, and spies get involved, and it's a really interesting film as far as you know how it, how how he tries to you know uh, infiltrate you know different things, and it's beautiful though. Like that's the thing I was gonna say is I it's more than the story, more than any of that. It's gorgeous. Like man, there are some shots in this where. I was just like I paused it and was just staring at scenes like there's the the one where they're on the steps and the the camera's you know the the camera that the guy's using is looking at the camera and it's gorgeous it's just like black and white photography Hitchcock early Hitchcock like it, it's 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 so good yeah you can't see me but I'm nodding my head yeah <laughs> uh, how about how about the windmill uh, how about the windmill scene oh man like it, it it's like Frankenstein style, man. It's, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Uh, yeah, the the photography there, the fire, the everything. It there's just movies where I feel bad for not like as I watched it, I, I wasn't as invested in the story as much as I probably should have been because it looks so good. I was stunned at how good it looked because like with Hitchcock, to me usually. With, with like his more popular films, mm-hmm. I'm he, he he was such a good storyteller, like, and I I really loved his movies for the stories. And this was like one of the first ones where, um, the visuals he he always has good visuals, but the visuals in this really just kind of like took me back, and I just fell in love with it. And it's black and white and it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's very impressive. Absolutely. Was it like thirty nine or something? I think. I think or it's 40? Four, 1940, Yeah. Okay. Um, nice. Yeah. So for the time that it came out, man, it's it's doing some great, great stuff, amazing stuff. Awesome. Yeah, I got to see that one. This one I've always just meant to see, and it probably gonna... should have been higher on my list. I don't know why it's so low, but that's where it fell. I never. Uh, another one I've never seen of his is Topaz. I've never I, I do. I do like Topaz. Uh, I'm. Do you guys like? Uh, is it Family Affair? Never seen it. Family Plot. Yeah, Family Plot. Never seen it. That's one oh, that a lot of people I feel don't like that I really like a lot. Well, that was his last one, wasn't it? Yeah, that was. Was the, it really? I thought Frenzy was no. No, Frenzy was right before that. Okay, cool. Um, have you guys seen? I'm sure. I'm sure you've seen Notorious. Yes. Yeah. That's a good one, man. That's it's speaking of stairs, man. That scene on the stairs. Great Duran Duran song. It, it's funny because every time <laughs> I think of that film title, I hear them in the head. No. No, <laughs> which also I think a biggie, right? So, yeah. Well, that's like when anytime somebody says "I can't wait," I do that that uh, song, "Baby, I Can't Wait." Yeah. <laughs> Every time it gets right into my head. I know, man. I know. Um, next up was a film that I'm gonna give you guys a cast. You tell me how you think this film's gonna fare. 
David Boreanaz, Miguel Ferrer, Neil Patrick Harris, John Hurd, Lucy Lawless, Kyle McLaughlin, Kira Sedgwick, Jeremy Sisto. What the hell? And <laughs> of those, Kyle McLaughlin's going to play Superman. <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris will play Barry Allen, The Flash. Miguel Ferrer will play John Jones, Martian Manhunter. Boreanaz is Hal Jordan. So this Lucy is an animated film. This certainly is an animated film. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very good one. Dar- yeah, Darwin Cooks, I believe. Uh, yep. Justice League, The New Frontier. Yep. Uh, Scott recommended it. I think, Todd, you're a fan. Oh, yeah. Um, Big fan. Yeah, some people who I really... I think Wendy is a fan. Some people whose opinions I really trusted um, really rep for this one. I went through a big kick of the DC animated stuff. And I have to say, it's really, being a Marvel kid growing up, it really has swung the pendulum for me, where I kind of gently rib one of my good buddies, Simon, about it, because now I'm kind of pro-DC. And I love this, you know, 19th, this basically takes place in the 50s, and um, it's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The the history is sort of revised history, a revised... um, like a retcon. Retcon, exactly. It, it, the mythology isn't what you know we've known it to be, and it just to, to see the the genesis of of these guys and the, you know the team up and stuff, and I, I like seeing that. I like kind of seeing when uh, comic books have sort of allowed real world events or events that are comparable to real world um, seep into their storylines, much like you know the World War Two stuff with Cap and. And all that stuff. So this is beautifully done. It's done in a kind of a classic style of animation. Um, you know, very good. It's uh, pretty short. It's what 75, 80 minutes long. And uh, I really, yeah, really dug it, man. Really dug it. And, and uh, I, I know we said that it's Darwin Cook, but Darwin Cook wrote and drew the graphic novel that it was based on. Yes. So just to clarify. Yes, yes. Because, yeah, if there's any <laughs> Puritans, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, does anyone who's a stickler for facts? Sticklers, yeah. I would have botched that one for sure, but yeah, based on the cook uh, material. So, yes, yeah. So that's uh, that's what is that? That's number twenty-five. Yep. yep. Uh, number twenty-six, uh, nineteen sixty-seven. Louis Bunuel, Belle du Jour. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, this was. Uh, yeah, buddy. Uh, it was a really interesting look at. Uh, the fear of and the need for sex through Deneuve's character. Um, I love that, like, throughout the film, he does these little intercuts to her memory and, like, her her state of mind. Uh, and I, I just love the way that he did that. Um, he shows, Boonwell shows that he understands the, the medium of film, like, totally. The, the man was, he knew what he was doing behind the camera. Um, it, it gets a little weird and creepy um, as the character starts to, to find herself, uh, you know, her, uh, find herself as a sexual being. Uh, and actually, <clears throat> it was interesting to me because around the same time that I watched this, I watched uh, Vice Squad uh, nice. for uh, for review, and I noticed the similarities uh, between uh, some of the things that happen in Belle de Jour and some of the things that happen to the character in uh, Vice Squad. Particularly with the the one one uh, John or or client or whoever uh, who has like an obsession with the with like funerals and that. 
Um, so yeah. cool little parallel there that if you, if you, you know, if you see the two movies close enough together, you, you make the connection. I probably wouldn't have, uh, if I hadn't seen them as close together, but, uh, and I mean, just Catherine, Catherine Deneuve in and of herself. I mean, how in the hell do you not want to look at that? Yeah. She's dynamite, man. Oh, man. Even today, she's still oh, rocking. Fine wine. Yeah. Yeah, buddy. I approve. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Belle de Jour, really good movie, really interesting movie. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a little cheeky. It uh, is. But, uh, but very, very good. So. Mrs. Belle de Jour, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So another one that probably, now that I'm looking at my list, should have been way higher, but whatever, it's where it fell. I, I'll start reading my cast. It's pretty crazy. So you got Goldblum, you got uh, Berenger, Beverly D'Angelo, Jerry Orbach, Christopher Walken, Eli Wallach, uh, Arthur Kennedy, John Carradine, uh, directed by Michael Winner. This is The Sentinel. Man, this film is so good. Fucking it's love so it. Good. Oh, love it. Uh, now, do you go? I, I go. Do you go over The Exorcist? For this one or no? Um, I go over Rosemary's Baby for this. Okay. Because I always um, compare the two because it's like New York apartment, a cult, yeah. you know, uh, or, um, you know, losing their mind. Are they not losing their mind? Yeah, Chris, Christina Raines is uh, basically she. Yeah, she moves into this apartment building after she's tried to like kill herself before, and she moves into this apartment building, and uh, there's a priest that lives there, blind priest, and basically a. Uh, Things start to happen in, in where she lives, and you start to kind of realize where she's living and, and what's going on. And it's probably one of the creepiest films I've ever seen. Oh, man. It gets really feverish and insane, too. Yeah. it gets Especially once they start trotting out the, the folks at the back end. Oh, my God. Yeah. When, they, when they come in the room, I, I was – I watched this. It was you know during Halloween time, and it was just completely pitch black in my apartment, and I freaked out. Like, it got – I got to the point where I, I ended up turning one of the lights on just to kind of feel a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. 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 Well, and I, I think they actually caught a lot of uh, of uh, flack for uh, for using the people in that scene that they did. Oh yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Um, but yeah, it, like I said, I'm realizing that it probably should have been higher, but whatever it is, what it is, it's a great <laughs> film. Um, and if you want to get scared, and you haven't seen this, I would say watch The Sentinel. Absolutely. Which needs a good, it needs a, I have the blue from like Germany or something, but it needs a good like release here in the States, you know, or North America on blue. Yeah. Come on. Arrow shout factory. Somebody. Someone. It's a big one. It is. It's a great one. Yeah. I'm really surprised it hasn't gotten anything like that. I know it's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's very, I had to buy this big, ugly German box with it. It's one of those huge hard boxes. It's like I don't like them; they're too big. Yeah, they're yeah, they don't fit <laughs> nicely with everything. Uh, next up is one that I caught on Netflix. It should still be on Instant, and it's a Serbian noir, and it's really good. And the the plot for this is a real kick in the dick. I thought it was a sequel to Serbian film, Serbian noir. Oh yeah, no kidding, man. But it's uh, it's called The Trap. I don't know if I said that yet. Also known as uh, back home. Klopka. So, or yeah. So anyway, it's um, 
really desperate kind of uh, plot. Basically what happens, you know, in Serbia, um, a couple, you know, they seem to be working class but happy. And the wife in it, I should say, is just beautiful. She's kind of like a, uh, a Serbian, not quite as beautiful, but I really, was, I found her quite quite uh, beautiful. Uh, she's kind of like a Serbian uh, Baluchi, Natasha Ninkovic. Really, really beautiful. But basically the plot of the film, which I keep rambling around about here, is this couple, they're kind of hard, struggling to make ends meet. The wife's a teacher, and then the father has some sort of a, he's like a, a electrician or something. Anyway, um, their son begins to have these increasingly more severe episodes where um, his heart, he's, he faints and his heart stops. And they say, look, <clears throat> you got to get come up with like 10K and he needs to go fly to Germany to get uh, the surgery. Well, there's no health care over there. So the parents are pretty much fucked. So they put an ad in the newspaper saying, you know, our son, we need money, anything we can be willing to do, this and that. And then the father gets a uh, reply to his ad saying, I'll give you $10,000 to kill a man. Oh. And it goes from there. And there's some twists and turns. And it's really good. Really good. It looks at sort of, it's not fantastical. Like it looks at kind of like, the practical um, difficulties that you know someone who's ill-equipped to be an assassin has, and how it impacts their marriage, and um, it's really good, man. It's 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 a rough film. I, I really dug it. Wow! So and it's on instant. So cool. Real yeah, good. Right. Yeah, there you go. Nice. All right. Uh, number 27, 2012 from Mr. Thomas Vinterberg is The Hunt. Oh, yes. Um, this thing was gripping as all hell. Uh, Mads, uh, proves that he is absolutely, you know, he has absolute versatility as an actor. Um, because you normally see him as, you know, cold or angry or insane. And in here, and here he's, he's the complete opposite. He's very warm, caring, you know, nice guy. Um, this is the sort of film where you keep tensing up because you know the truth uh, and you know what's going on, or at least you have a very strong feeling that you do. Uh, it sort of uses that kind of like wrong man kind of principle like Hitchcock would use actually a lot of times. Uh -huh. um, I think that uh, it's a little bit, the framing is a little bit tight sometimes, which I didn't really care for, but... I mean, that's really about the only thing I could find to complain about in the entire movie. Could you argue that we're supposed to feel kind of claustrophobic and penned in in this small town, though? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I could see that in retrospect. Yeah, no, I, I could agree with that one. Yeah. But teach their own, certainly. No, 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 that's fine. Um, it has a fantastic ending. Love oh, it. Oh, man. Absolutely Love totally it. like that ending is a, one of those ones where you can discuss the intent because my wife and I had a completely different uh, difference of opinion in terms of intent and what was being said and yeah mm -hmm. absolutely but it, it's it's just great great note perfect on the ending for sure they stuck the landing on that one buddy yeah man so that is my number twenty seven all right twenty seven for me is a, another horror movie. Um, one that I kind of slept on for, I guess I did, I guess actually, no, I didn't sleep on it. This is, I don't even know if this qualifies, it doesn't qualify for my, uh, rules actually. I just realized that, but it'll stay. It is, uh, The Conjuring. Um, okay. 
Oh, that was from last year, I think, or 2013? 2013. Yeah, put it on. Who cares? Yeah. It's your list. You make the rules. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had Wolf of Wall Street do it. Yeah, yeah there I'm you changing, go. I'm, I'm changing the rules. Um, but yeah, uh, I kind of slept on it when it came out, though, definitely. Uh, thinking it was like, oh, whatever. It's going to be another same old, same old. And while it does have elements of that, it does a lot of good stuff right, I felt. And it ultimately, a horror movie needs to scare me. And it really fucking scared me. Um, and that's all I could ask of a horror movie, really. Um, I thought the performances are good. I thought the 70s, like, they nailed the 70s look, um, which is pretty cool to do. Like, I think that's, you know, I feel like in horror now, they don't do a lot of, uh, like, you know, they do period pieces, but not 70s period pieces. Um, so it's kind of cool to see that. Um, I really like James Wan. Uh be it horror, action, whatever he's doing. I think he's got a, a really good eye. And, uh, yeah, Conjuring scared the shit out of me, and that's why it's on the list. Do you prefer it to Insidious? Yeah, I like Conjuring. Well, this is weird. I like Conjuring more than Insidious, but I like Insidious 2 more than Conjuring. Oh, nice. I liked Insidious. I was very pleasantly surprised. I got to see Insidious 2 in the Conjuring. Insidi- Insidious 2 is more bonkers. That's cool. I love the bonkers stuff in part one. So Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, okay, I'm gonna, you know, for the interest of time, I'm gonna just, <laughs> just give a short uh, assessment of this. Another one from the Clickers, man. Clickers Clan comes correct. Um, Scott and Cat covered this on their show, if memory serves. He said to me, "You gotta see it. It's called Fair Game from 1988." Um, if I had to describe this film, I would describe it as Bruno Mattei doing a mid '90s erotic thriller. <laughs> yeah it's so it's so good um trudy styler um sting's wife gets naked i think a lot in it. it was like a it was supposed to be like a project for her to get her career off the ground um what it basically happens is uh, i'll read the synopsis gene a clever but seriously deranged computer game designer has been left by his fiance eva Unable to win her back, he decides to take revenge by locking eva in her apartment inside which he has released a deadly mamba snake it's awesome man it's so ridiculous and 90s and sleazy and absurd and oh and Trudy Stoller's pretty bad in it but in a good way she's and Bill Mosley's in it man so nice yeah it's it's a lot of fun cool um number 28 uh we're moving over to Mother Russia with 1938 uh, from Sergei Eisenstein, it's Alexander Nevsky. Nice. Um, yeah, buddy. This has some uh, some very harsh imagery in it, um, with the Russians versus Germans. You know, at a point in time in actual history when relations were not exactly at their best. No. Uh, it's got a, a fantastic, epic, theatrical look to it. It's big. Uh, got a very fairy tale kind of approach to the the story and the characters are bigger than life but they're interesting um the only real downside to this and again this is something that i brought up with will is that there's a lot of uh, anthemic kind of singing uh in the style of like nikolai volkov so <laughs> if, if that's if that's something that if that's something that uh, that you're not really keen on you might kind of it, it's really not enough to to put you off your feet it's not enough to ruin the movie at all but there is a lot of it and you will notice it 
uh, but this is absolutely 100% uh, a movie worth seeing. If all you've seen of uh, of Eisenstein was, uh, you know, stuff like Battleship Potemkin, then you really owe it to yourself to, to follow up with something like this, which is maybe not equal to that, but certainly uh, in the ballpark of it. Absolutely. And uh, that's that. Nice. All right. Yeah, I'm going to fly through these last couple ones. Uh, so we got the another horror movie. Um, I don't know what they all seem to be grouped together here, but um, the Dunwich Horror. Uh, okay. In 1970, um, I like me some Lovecraft, and this is I feel like a really well done, you know, Lovecraft in Lovecraftian story, and um, yeah, it's basically the old ones, you know, want to come through, and there's a guy that wants to help them, and you know, you got Dean Stockwell in there, uh, Sandra D is. I don't know if you guys do. You guys like Sandra D. I'm down with the D. I'm yeah, down with the D yeah, stock sure. too. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. But yeah, it, it's got you know, especially for the '70s, it's got some cool, you know, kind of horrific imagery and you know that love that Lovecraft, you know, Lovecraftian stuff, snakes and creatures and everything coming out at you and uh, cults and it's just that. I feel like the '70s. This is early. I mean, this is 1970. So, but I still feel like it's within that decade where cults really felt uh, like there was a lot of them in film, and uh, the Dunwich Horror I feel is one of the first ones that really did it really well. Um, but yeah, for you know a cool little Lovecraftian story, it's pretty good. Nice. Uh, number 28 for me, a bit of a deep cut from Japan, uh, Woman of the Lake. I didn't know a whole lot about this one, but it sounded pretty compelling. Um, directed by filmmaker Yoshida, Kiju Yoshida. Uh, a married woman lets her lover take naked pictures of her. The photos end up in possession of a man who starts blackmailing the couple. So it's pretty cool, man. It feels... Um, like some of these kind of uh, paranoid European kind of sexual thrillers of the 60s and 70s. And it uh, feels like an Imamura film in some ways. Um, yeah, it's it's a cool one for sure. Nice. Nice. Uh, number 29 from 2002 from Mr. Todd Haynes. It is Far From Heaven. Oh, so good. Oh, yeah, buddy. Uh, like uh, much like Douglas Sirk, which this is obviously you know mimicking, uh, it's painted with light, but it's it was much more I thought stylized or or emphasized. Like uh, at night, it's the nights aren't like dark; they're blue. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, it's also much more direct in its themes than Sirk was, but that's also a, a, you know a symptom of the the, the times. Time. Yeah. yeah. Um. It's got uh, you know the the really great little uh, little theme there about being silent and miserable while uh, wearing a veneer of uh, dutifulness from uh, Julianne Moore who does an excellent job and Dennis uh, Dennis Quaid Dennis Aysbert? Quaid oh Quaid Quaid yeah Dennis Quaid yeah I was I didn't I didn't want to say Randy um, oh yeah a different film altogether with Randy does a really great job and, and of course yeah and Dennis Haysbert. I mean from all three leads it's you know some outstanding. Uh, some outstanding uh, actors. I'm back. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> little Randy Quaid. Oh, I was like, whoa, that kind of creeped me out. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> yeah, Randy Quaid. What a fucking guy. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's really. I mean, if you like Cirque, you would like this. Um, it's a, a great little melodrama, very very well done, and uh, some top notch acting all the way around. That's uh, far from heaven. Really good looking film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, uh, Sean P. Donahue with the hat trick. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 1990s Blood Hands. Oh, Blood Hands is a lot of fun. Yeah, directed by Teddy Page, who is also a lot of fun. And um, yes, yeah, and yeah, it's Sean or Donahue is uh, plays a guy named Steve who uh, he's in a grocery store and runs into some guys who are some kickboxing fools, <laughs> and they uh, <laughs> they cause some trouble, and he tries to intervene, and he gets caught up in the trouble. And it starts to involve his family, and then he has to basically try to protect his family. And it's bloody and ridiculous and, you know, lots of kickboxing, and it's fun. And uh, that's good old Donahue with the third movie on the list. That's amazing. I have, I think, two Rossellinis and two DeSicas. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Donahue makes fun films, though, man. Oh, man. I had, like, that. you can tell from my list. Like, I had a year of... Like these crazy action movies, and they're fun as hell. They are, man. They keep you in a good mood. Is that's what films should do, right? Oh, so good. But yeah, that's Blood Hands. Cool. Uh, my number twenty-nine. Speaking of Rossellini, was uh, Journey to Italy, which he did with his wife. Um, I'm really starting to run on fumes here. Uh, Bergman. Um, Ingrid Bergman, right? That's her name? <laughs> Ingrid Bergman, yeah. Yeah, fuck. Uh, on the ropes. Um, yeah, and it's just about, um, again, it's interesting to see him do this film with his wife when it's about a man and his wife. And it's done in English, right, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, you get the best of both worlds. You get, uh, you know, all the stuff in Italy and the sights and sounds and the culture, but... Um, it's with a couple from an English, very, you know, blue blood couple. And uh, George Sanders is the husband. And he's really good. And I haven't seen a whole lot of Sanders. I know he's, you know. Oh, well, he's great. Yeah, he is great. I mean, he's really great in this film. You know, what's crazy is he was born in St. Petersburg, Russia. Oh, in, really? In 1906, yeah. Nice. But um, he's amazing in the film. You can really see that, you know, he's he's got it, like, as far as charisma. But, you know, it's really cool. We go on this journey with Bergman and him, and you kind of see both of them do their own things. And, um, you know, you can see, like, Kubrick and, you know, with Eyes Wide Shut, and it's not quite to that seedy. There's no orgy with masks. But um, just, you know, a marriage dissolving. And um, I really dug it, man. I thought it was really, really good stuff. And, um, again, i got to dig into more Ross Laney, certainly. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, rounding it off, number 30 from 2010, uh, Mr. Quentin Dupieux, uh, his film Rubber. Nice, I haven't seen this one yet. Uh, it, this has a great opening, uh, the no reason speech that this guy just comes out and gives to the audience. Uh, it sets everything up perfectly, just absolutely to a T, I think. Um it gets big points uh, for originality and embracing just you know, 
a more pure visual storytelling. It's absurd as you know Depew's movies do tend to be. Um, he makes use of a, a chorus to explain things to us, which is it's a little bit blah, but it's pretty amusing when they when they do it. Uh, by the way, the movie's about a, a, a sentient uh, tire who falls in love with a woman. And doesn't uh, so, have wings again, right? It all comes back to Wingshauser. Uh, <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, I knew I had him on there for a reason. <laughs> uh, I really love the metatextual angle um, with life being watched and acted with, and from what's being watched. It's one of those things where you're looking and being looked at and all that sort of thing. So, but it, it's yeah, if you like Depew's movies, and I certainly am a fan of his, I have to say. Um, this will uh, this will do it for you. It's uh, it's definitely not for everybody, but it's definitely for me. So uh, that's mm, the end of my list. All Sweet. right, my number thirty is directed by Bana Ritikai, which uh, is the director of Born to Fight. Oh man, nice. Yeah, nice. it's it kind of didn't know what to expect. I bought this on a whim just because it, you know. The director did a lot of, you know, he did like the on box stuff and all that. Um, I'd never seen it, anything, didn't know anything about it, and it's typical of that country and and all that stuff. Crazy action, over the top stunts. You don't watch this for story or anything. You wait for set piece to set piece, and every set piece gets bigger and better and more intense, and it's crazy. And I feel like it's a fitting end of my list with. A over-the-top crazy action movie. Fantastic. Uh, but yeah, Born to Fight, 2004. Good stuff. Interesting. That's only my second favorite film called Born to Fight. The yeah. Bruno, Bruno Mattei, uh, Brent Huff jam is my favorite Born to Fight film. Nice. I don't think I've seen that. It's very cool, man. He's like a Crocodile Dundee type character. <laughs> and he's always like um, giving himself kind of like mumbling motivational speeches while he's killing dudes. Like, can do? Will do. Oh man! Yeah, it's it's very strange. It's very strange. Amazing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Shark tooth necklace, leather vest. Oh yeah. yeah! It's it's awesome, man. Speaking my language. So, <laughs> the last film for me is also very fitting for me. Uh, it was the last one I watched of 2014, and it was from a director that. Um, Oh, man, I, I I guess the confusion for me came from the fact that I thought it was a Pasolini jam, but it was Bernardo Bertolucci. And uh, it's it's uh, 1962's The Grim Reaper. Now, this one's very cool. I, caught, I picked up my library the same time I picked up The Children Are Watching, and it's also out on Criterion. The hook for this film, which, which really appealed to me, was it's kind of told in like... Uh, it's about, well, basically, let me back up. It's about a prostitute that gets killed. The police track down some people that were around the area that night, and they get them to recount their stories. So it plays out in a very Rashomon way. Um, so it's really cool. And I, because Rashomon's my favorite Kurosawa, so I thought you take that kind of setup, and you get Bertolucci doing it in 60s Italy, but with this prostitute's murder, I'm all in. And, uh, uh, yeah, thankfully it, it was what I had hoped it was going to be. It was, it was fantastic. And, uh, you know, um, what can I say? I, I think eight or nine of my films were from Italy, but it's, 
you know, it's my it's my country. So cool. I got to get on that. Yeah, it's it's cool, man. It's uh, it's cool. Very cool. I think you'll probably come in around the seven and a half mark, maybe. But, okay. Yeah, you know, still worth your time, certainly. Oh, awesome. cool. You can feel the Pasolini in it. Like he wrote it, you really feel the Pasolini in it. So. Yeah, well, guys, that's. I want to thank you guys so, so, so much. I know we're all getting kind of we're on the ropes here and uh, punchy, but I really want to thank you guys. It's it's always fun to talk film with people that are dear friends of the show and dear friends in real life. So it's uh, it's always a lot of fun doing this show. You're always very a pleasure, welcome. Man. Thank yeah, you. It's, it's good times. We'll probably have this episode up hopefully tomorrow. It's going to be massive, lengthy. <laughs> Yeah man. <laughs> yeah man. It's uh lengthy, girthy. It's all of it. It's two hander. Pulsating. Pulsating, gyrating. <laughs> um yeah, so that's it. Uh, I guess with that there is, as always, only one thing left to say. Adios. Adios. Adios.